Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Every day, we rise. Challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Part 6 of The Intrusion of Jimmy by P.G. Woodhouse This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Intrusion of Jimmy Chapter 16 A Marriage Arranged Neither Molly nor her father had moved or spoken while Jimmy was covering the short strip of turf that ended at the stone steps of the house. McEachern stood looking down at her in grim silence. His great body against the dark mass of the castle wall seemed larger than ever in the uncertain light. To Molly there was something sinister and menacing in his attitude. She found herself longing that Jimmy would come back. She was frightened. Why, she could not have said. It was as if some instinct told her that a crisis in her affairs had been reached and that she needed him. For the first time in her life she felt nervous in her father's company. Ever since she was a child she had been accustomed to look upon him as her protector, but now she was afraid. "'Father!' she cried. "'What are you doing out here?' His voice was tense and strained. I came out because I wanted to think, father dear." She thought she knew his moods, but this was one that she had never seen. It frightened her. "'Why did he come out here?' "'Mr. Pitt, he brought me a rap.' "'What was he saying to you?' The rain of questions gave Molly a sensation of being battered. She felt dazed and a little mutinous. What had she done that she should be assailed like this? He was saying nothing, she said rather shortly. Nothing? What do you mean? What was he saying? Tell me. Molly's voice shook as she replied. He was saying nothing, she repeated. Do you think I'm not telling you the truth, father? He had not spoken a word for ever so long. We just walked up and down. I was thinking, and I suppose he was too. At any rate, he said nothing. I... I think you might believe me." She began to cry quietly. Her father had never been like this before. It hurt her. McKechern's manner changed in a flash. In the shock of finding Jimmy and Molly together on the terrace he had forgotten himself. He had reason to be suspicious. Sir Thomas Blunt, from whom he had just parted, had told him a certain piece of news which had disturbed him. The discovery of Jimmy with Molly had lent an added significance to that piece of news. He saw that he had been rough. In a moment he was by her side, his great arm round her shoulder, 
petting and comforting her as he had done when she was a child. He believed her word without question, and his relief made him very tender. Gradually the sobs ceased. She leaned against his arm. "'I'm tired, father,' she whispered. "'Poor little girl! We'll sit down.' There was a seat at the end of the terrace. McCarran picked Molly up as if she had been a baby and carried her to it. She gave a little cry. "'I didn't mean I was too tired to walk,' she said, laughing tremulously. "'How strong you are, father! If I was naughty, you could take me up and shake me till I was good, couldn't you?' "'Of course, and send you to bed, too. So you be careful, young woman.' He lowered her to the seat. Molly drew the cloak closer round her and shivered. "'Cold, dear?' "'No.' You shivered. It was nothing. Yes, it was, she went on quickly. It was. Father, will you promise me something? Of course. What? Don't ever be angry with me like that again, will you? I couldn't bear it. Really, I couldn't. I know it's stupid of me, but it hurt. You don't know how it hurt. But, my dear, oh, I know it's stupid, but— but, my darling, it wasn't so. I was angry, but it wasn't with you." "'With—were you angry with Mr. Pitt?' McEachern saw that he had travelled too far. He had intended that Jimmy's existence should be forgotten for the time being. He had other things to discuss, but it was too late now. He must go forward. "'I didn't like to see you out here alone with Mr. Pitt, dear,' he said. I was afraid." He saw that he must go still further forward. It was more than awkward. He wished to hint at the undesirability of an entanglement with Jimmy without admitting the possibility of it. Not being a man of nimble brain, he found this somewhat beyond his powers. "'I don't like him,' he said briefly. "'He's crooked.' Molly's eyes opened wide. The color had gone from her face. Crooked father? McEachern perceived that he had travelled very much too far, almost to disaster. He longed to denounce Jimmy, but he was gagged. If Molly were to ask the question that Jimmy had asked in the bedroom, that fatal, unanswerable question, the price was too great to pay. He spoke cautiously, vaguely, feeling his way. I couldn't explain it to you, my dear. You wouldn't understand. You must remember, my dear, that out in New York I was in a position to know a great many queer characters—crooks, Molly. I was working among them." "'But, father, that night at our house you didn't know Mr. Pitt. He had to tell you his name.' "'I didn't know him then,' said her father slowly. "'But—but—he paused. But I made inquiries," he concluded with a rush, and found out things. He permitted himself a long, silent breath of relief. He saw his way now. Inquiries, said Molly. Why? Why? Why did you suspect him? A moment earlier the question might have confused McEachern, but not now. He was equal to it. He took it in his stride. It's hard to say, my dear. 
a man who has had as much to do with crooks as I have recognizes them when he sees them." "'Do you think Mr. Pitt looked—looked like that?' Her voice was very small. There was a drawn, pinched expression on her face. She was paler than ever. He could not divine her thoughts. He could not know what his words had done, how they had shown her in a flash what Jimmy was to her, and lighted her mind like a flame, revealing the secret hidden there. She knew now. The feeling of comradeship, the instinctive trust, the sense of dependence, they no longer perplexed her. They were signs which she could read. And he was crooked. McEachern proceeded. Belief made him buoyant. I did, my dear. I can read them like a book. I've met scores of his sort. Broadway is full of them. Good clothes and a pleasant manner don't make a man honest. I've run up against a mighty high-toned bunch of crooks in my day. It's a long time since I gave up thinking that it was only the ones with the low foreheads and the thick ears that needed watching. It's the innocent willies, who look as if all they could do was lead to the cotillion. This man pits one of them. I'm not guessing, mind you. I know. I know his line, and all about him. I'm watching him. He's here on some game. How did he get here? Why, he scraped acquaintance with Lord Drever in a London restaurant. It's the commonest trick on the list. If I hadn't happened to be here when he came, I suppose he'd have made his haul by now. Why, he came all prepared for it. Have you seen an ugly, grinning, red-headed scoundrel hanging about the place? His valet. So he says, valet. Do you know who that is? That's one of the most notorious yeggmen on the other side. There isn't a policeman in New York who doesn't know Spike Mullins. Even if I knew nothing of this pit, that would be enough. What's an innocent man going round the country with Spike Mullins for, unless they are standing in together at some game? That's who Mr. Pitt is, my dear. And that's why, maybe, I seemed a little put out when I came upon you and him out here alone together. See as little of him as you can. In a large party like this, it won't be difficult to avoid him." Molly sat staring out across the garden. At first every word had been a stab. Several times she had been on the point of crying out that she could bear it no longer. But gradually a numbness succeeded the pain. She found herself listening apathetically. McEachern talked on. He left the subject of Jimmy, comfortably conscious that, even if there had ever existed in Molly's heart any budding feeling of the kind he had suspected, it must now be dead. He steered the conversation away until it ran easily among commonplaces. He talked of New York, of the preparations for the theatricals. Molly answered composedly. She was still pale, and a certain listlessness in her manner might have been noticed by a more observant man than Mr. McEachern. Beyond this, there was nothing to show that her heart had been born and killed but a few minutes before. Men have the red Indian instinct, and Molly had grown to womanhood in those few minutes. Presently Lord Drever's name came up. It caused a momentary pause, and McEachern took advantage of it. It was the cue for which he had been waiting. 
He hesitated for a moment, for the conversation was about to enter upon a difficult phase, and he was not quite sure of himself. Then he took the plunge. "'I have just been talking to Sir Thomas, my dear,' he said. He tried to speak casually, and as a natural result infused so much meaning into his voice that Molly looked at him in surprise. McEachern coughed confusedly. Diplomacy, he concluded, was not his fort. He abandoned it in favor of directness. He was telling me that you had refused Lord Drever this evening. Yes, I did, said Molly. How did Sir Thomas know? Lord Drever told him. Molly raised her eyebrows. I shouldn't have thought it was the sort of thing he would talk about, she said. Sir Thomas is his uncle. Of course, so he is, said Molly dryly. I forgot. That would account for it, wouldn't it? Mr. McEachern looked at her with some concern. There was a hard ring in her voice which he did not altogether like. His greatest admirer had never called him an intuitive man, and he was quite at a loss to see what was wrong. As a schemer, he was perhaps a little naive. He had taken it for granted that Molly was ignorant of the maneuvers which had been going on, and which had culminated that afternoon in a stammering proposal of marriage from Lord Drever in the Rose Garden. This, however, was not the case. The woman incapable of seeing through the machinations of two men in the mental caliber of Sir Thomas Blunt and Mr. McEachern has yet to be born. For some considerable time Molly had been alive to the well-meant plottings of that worthy pair, and had derived little pleasure from the fact. It may be that woman loves to be pursued, but she does not love to be pursued by a crowd. Mr. McEachern cleared his throat and began again. You shouldn't decide a question like that too hastily, my dear." I didn't. Not too hastily for Lord Drever, at any rate, poor dear. It was in your power, said Mr. McEachern portentously, to make a man happy. I did, said Molly bitterly. You should have seen his face light up. He could hardly believe it was true for a moment, and then it came home to him and I thought he would have fallen on my neck. He did his very best to look heartbroken, out of politeness, but it was no good. He whistled most of the way back to the house, all flat, but very cheerfully. My dear, what do you mean? Molly had made the discovery earlier in their conversation that her father had moods whose existence she had not expected. It was his turn now to make a similar discovery regarding herself. "'I mean nothing, father,' she said. "'I'm just telling you what happened. He came to me looking like a dog that's going to be washed. Why, of course. He was nervous, my dear. Of course. He couldn't know that I was going to refuse him.' She was breathing quickly. He started to speak, but she went on, looking straight before her. Her face was very white in the moonlight. He took me into the rose garden. Was that Sir Thomas's idea? There couldn't have been a better setting, I'm sure. The roses looked lovely. Presently I heard him gulp, and I was so sorry for him. I would have refused him then, 
and put him out of his misery, only I couldn't very well till he had proposed, could I? So I turned my back and sniffed at a rose. And then he shut his eyes, I couldn't see him, but I know he shut his eyes, and began to say his lesson. Molly! She laughed hysterically. He did! He said his lesson! He gabbled it! When he had got as far as, well, don't you know what I mean is, that's what I wanted to say, you know, I turned round and soothed him. I said I didn't love him. He said, no, no, of course not. I said he had paid me a great compliment. He said, not at all, looking very anxious, poor darling, as if even then he was afraid of what might come next. But I reassured him, and he cheered up, and we walked back to the house together as happy as could be." McEachern put his hand round her shoulders. She winced, but let it stay. He attempted gruff conciliation. "'My dear, you've been imagining things. Of course he isn't happy. Why, I saw the young fellow—' Recollecting that the last time he had seen the young fellow, shortly after dinner, the young fellow had been occupied in juggling, with every appearance of mental peace, two billiard-balls and a box of matches. He broke off abruptly. Molly looked at him. "'Father! My dear! Why do you want me to marry Lord Drever?' He met the attack stoutly. "'I think he's a fine young fellow.' he said, avoiding her eyes. "'He's quite nice,' said Molly quietly. McEachern had been trying not to say it. He did not wish to say it. If it could have been hinted at, he would have done it, but he was not good at hinting. A lifetime passed in surroundings where the subtlest hint is a drive in the ribs with a truncheon does not leave a man adept at the art. He had to be blunt or silent. "'He's the Earl of Drever, my dear.' He rushed on, desperately anxious to cover the nakedness of the statement in a comfortable garment of words. "'Why, you see you're young, Molly. It's only natural you shouldn't look on these things sensibly. You expect too much of a man. You expect this fellow to be like the heroes of the novels you read.' When you've lived a little longer, my dear, you'll see that there's nothing in it. It isn't the hero of the novel you want to marry. It's the man who make you a good husband." This remark struck Mr. McEachern as so pithy and profound that he repeated it. He went on. Molly was sitting quite still, looking into the shrubbery. He assumed she was listening, but whether she was or not, he must go on talking. The situation was difficult. Silence would make it more difficult. "'Now look at Lord Drever,' he said. "'There's a young man with one of the oldest titles in England. He could go anywhere and do what he liked, and be excused for whatever he did because of his name. But he doesn't. He's got the right stuff in him. He doesn't go racketing around. His uncle doesn't allow him enough pocket-money said Molly, with a jarring little laugh. Perhaps that's why." There was a pause. McEachern required a few moments in which to marshal his arguments once more. He had been thrown out of his stride. Molly turned to him. The hardness had gone from her face. 
She looked up at him wistfully. "'Father, dear, listen,' she said. "'We always used to understand each other so well.' He patted her shoulder affectionately. "'You can't mean what you say. You know I don't love Lord Drever. You know he's only a boy. Don't you want me to marry a man?' "'I love this old place. But surely you can't think that it can really matter in a thing like this. You don't really mean that about the hero of the novel. I'm not stupid like that. I only want—oh, I can't put it into words, but don't you see?" Her eyes were fixed appealingly on him. It only needed a word from him, perhaps not even a word, to close the gulf that had opened between them. He missed the chance. He had had time to think, and his arguments were ready again. With stolid good humor, he marched along the line he had mapped out. He was kindly and shrewd and practical, and the gulf gaped wider with every word. "'You mustn't be rash, my dear. You mustn't act without thinking in these things. Lord Drever is only a boy, as you say, but he will grow. You say you don't love him? Nonsense! You like him! You would go on liking him more and more. And why? Because you could make what you pleased of him. You've got character, my dear. With a girl like you to look after him, he would go a long way, a very long way. It's all there. It only wants bringing out. And think of it, Molly. Countess of Drever. There's hardly a better title in England. It would make me very happy, my dear. It's been my one hope all these years to see you in the place where you ought to be. And now the chance has come. Molly, dear, don't throw it away." She leaned back with closed eyes. A wave of exhaustion had swept over her. She listened in a dull dream. She felt beaten. They were too strong for her, there were too many of them. What did it matter? Why not give in and end it all and win peace? That was all she wanted, peace now. What did it all matter? "'Very well, father,' she said listlessly. McEachern stopped short. "'You'll do it, dear?' he cried. "'You will?' "'Very well, father.' He stooped and kissed her. My own dear little girl, he said. She got up. I'm rather tired, father, she said. I think I'll go in. Two minutes later, Mr. McKechn was in Sir Thomas Blunt's study. Five minutes later, Sir Thomas pressed the bell. Saunders appeared. Tell his lordship, said Sir Thomas, that I wish to see him in a moment. He's in the billiard room, I think. Chapter 17 Jimmy Remembers Something The game between Hargate and Lord Drever was still in progress when Jimmy returned to the billiard-room. A glance at the board showed that the score was seventy-sixty-nine in favor of Spot. "'Good game,' said Jimmy. "'Who's Spot?' "'I am,' said his lordship, missing an easy cannon. For some reason he appeared in high spirits. Hargate's been going great guns. I was eleven ahead a moment ago, but he made a break of twelve. 
Lord Drever belonged to the class of billiard-players to whom a double-figure break is a thing to be noted and greeted with respect. "'Flukey,' muttered the silent Hargate, deprecatingly. This was a long speech for him. Since their meeting at Paddington Station, Jimmy had seldom heard him utter anything beyond a monosyllable. "'Not a bit of it, dear old son,' said Lord Drever, handsomely. "'You're coming on like a two-year-old. I shan't be able to give you twenty in a hundred much longer.' He went to a side-table and mixed himself a whisky and soda, singing a brief extract from musical comedy as he did so. There could be no shadow of doubt that he was finding life good. For the past few days, and particularly that afternoon, he had been rather noticeably ill at ease. Jimmy had seen him hanging about the terrace at half-past five, and had thought that he looked like a mute at a funeral. But now, only a few hours later, he was beaming on the world and chirping like a bird. The game moved jerkily along. Jimmy took a seat and watched. The score mounted slowly. Lord Drever was bad, but Hargate was worse. At length, in the eighties, his lordship struck a brilliant vein. When he had finished his break, his score was ninety-five. Hargate, who had profited by a series of misses on his opponent's part, had reached ninety-six. "'This is shortening my life,' said Jimmy, leaning forward. The balls had been left in an ideal position. Even Hargate could not fail to make a cannon. He made it. A close finish to even the worst game is exciting. Jimmy leaned still further forward to watch the next stroke. It looked as if Hargate would have to wait for his victory. A good player could have made a cannon as the balls lay, but not Hargate. They were almost in a straight line, with white in the center. Hargate swore under his breath. There was nothing to be done. He struck carelessly at White. White rolled against Red, seemed to hang for a moment, and shot straight back against the spot. The game was over. "'Great Scott! What a fluke!' cried the silent one, becoming quite garrulous at the miracle. A quiet grin spread itself slowly across Jimmy's face. He had remembered what he had been trying to remember for over a week. At this moment the door opened and Saunders appeared. "'Sir Thomas would like to see your lordship in his study,' he said. "'Eh? What does he want?' "'Sir Thomas did not confide in me, your lordship.' "'Eh? What? Oh, no. Well, see you later, you men.' He rested his cue against the table and put on his coat. Jimmy followed him out of the door, which he shut behind him. "'One second, Drever,' he said. "'Eh? Hello. What's up?' "'Any money on that game?' asked Jimmy. "'Why, yes, by Jove, now you mention it, there was. An even fiver. And, um, by the way, old man, the fact is, just for the moment, I'm frightfully—you haven't such a thing as a fiver anywhere about, have you?—the fact is, my dear fellow, of course, I'll square up with him now, shall I?' "'Fearfully obliged, if you would. Thanks, old man. Pay it to-morrow.' "'No hurry,' said Jimmy. Plenty more in the old oak chest." He went back to the room. Hargate was practicing cannons. He was on the point of making a stroke when Jimmy opened the door. "'Care for a game?' asked Hargate. "'Not just at the present,' said Jimmy. 
Hargate attempted his cannon and failed badly. Jimmy smiled. "'Not such a good shot as the last,' he said. "'No.' "'Fine shot, that other. Fluke. I wonder—' Jimmy lighted a cigarette. "'Do you know New York at all?' he asked. "'Been there. Ever been in the Strollers Club?' Hargate turned his back, but Jimmy had seen his face and was satisfied. "'Don't know it,' said Hargate. "'Great place,' said Jimmy. "'Mostly actors and writers and so on. The only drawback is that some of them pick up queer friends.' Hargate did not reply. He did not seem interested. "'Yes,' went on Jimmy. "'For instance, a pal of mine, an actor named Mifflin, introduced a man a year ago as a member's guest for a fortnight, and this man rooked the fellows of I don't know how much at billiards. The old game, you know, nursing his man right up to the end and then finishing with a burst. Of course, when that happens once or twice it may be an accident but when a man who poses as a novice always manages by a really brilliant shot." Hargate turned round. "'They fired this fellow out,' said Jimmy. "'Look here.' "'Yes?' "'What do you mean?' "'It's a dull yarn,' said Jimmy apologetically. "'I've been boring you. By the way, Dreever asked me to square up with you for that game, in case he shouldn't be back. Here you are.' He held out an empty hand. "'Got it?' "'What are you going to do?' demanded Hargate. "'What am I going to do?' queried Jimmy. "'You know what I mean. If you'll keep your mouth shut and stand in, it's halves. Is that what you're after?' Jimmy was delighted. He knew that by rights the proposal should have brought him from his seat, with stern set face, to wreak vengeance for the insult but on such occasions he was apt to ignore the conventions. His impulse, when he met a man whose code of behavior was not the ordinary code, was to chat with him and extract his point of view. He felt as little animus against Hargate as he had felt against Spike on the occasion of their first meeting. "'Do you make much of this sort of game?' he asked. Hargate was relieved. This was businesslike. "'Pots!' he said with some enthusiasm. "'Pots! I tell you, if you'll stand in—bit risky, isn't it?' "'Not a bit of it. An occasional accident. I suppose you'd call me one.' Hargate grinned. "'It must be pretty tough work,' said Jimmy. "'You must have to use a tremendous lot of self-restraint.' Hargate sighed. "'That's the worst of it,' he admitted the having to seem a mug at the game. I've been patronized sometimes by young fools who thought they were teaching me, until I nearly forgot myself and showed them what real billiards was." "'There's always some drawback to the learned professions,' said Jimmy. "'But there's a heap to make up for it in this one,' said Hargate. "'Well, look here. Is it a deal? You'll stand in.' Jimmy shook his head. "'I guess not.' he said. It's good of you, but commercial speculation never was in my line. I'm afraid you must count me out of this." "'What? You're going to tell?' "'No,' said Jimmy, "'I'm not. I'm not a vigilance committee. I won't tell a soul.'"
Why, then, began Hargate, relieved. Unless, of course, Jimmy went on, you play billiards again while you're here. Hargate stared. But, damn it, man, if I don't, what's the good? Look here, what am I to do if they ask me to play? Give your wrist as an excuse. My wrist? Yes, you sprained it tomorrow after breakfast. It was bad luck. I wonder how you came to do it. You didn't sprain it much, just enough to stop you playing billiards. Hargate reflected. Understand? said Jimmy. Oh, very well, said Hargate sullenly. But, he burst out, if I ever get a chance to get even with you— You won't, said Jimmy. Dismiss the rosy dream. Get even? You don't know me. There's not a flaw in my armor. I'm a sort of modern edition of the stainless knight. Tennyson drew Galahad from me. I move through life with almost a sickening absence of sin. But hush! We are observed. At least we shall be in another minute. Somebody is coming down the passage. You do understand, don't you? Sprained wrist is the watchword. The handle turned. It was Lord Drever back again from his interview. Hello, Drever, said Jimmy. We've missed you. Hargate has been doing his best to amuse me with acrobatic tricks. But you're too reckless, Hargate, old man. Mark my words. One of these days you'll be spraining your wrist. You should be careful. What? Going? Good night. Pleasant fellow, Hargate, he added, as the footsteps retreated down the passage. Well, my lad, what's the matter with you? You look depressed. Lord Drever flung himself to the lounge and groaned hollowly. Damn, 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 he observed. His glassy eye met Jimmy's and wandered away again. "'What on earth's the matter?' demanded Jimmy. "'You go out of here caroling like a songbird, and you come back moaning like a lost soul. What's happened?' "'Give me a brandy and soda, pit old man. There's a good chap. I'm in a fearful hole.' "'Why? What's the matter?' "'I'm engaged,' groaned his lordship. "'Engaged?' I wish you'd explain. What on earth's wrong with you? Don't you want to be engaged? What's your—' He broke off as a sudden, awful suspicion dawned upon him. "'Who is she?' he cried. He gripped the stricken peer's shoulder and shook it savagely. Unfortunately, he selected the precise moment when the latter was in the act of calming his quivering nerve-centers with a gulp of brandy and soda and for the space of some two minutes it seemed as if the engagement would be broken off by the premature extinction of the Drever line. A long and painful fit of coughing, however, ended with his lordship still alive and on the road to recovery. He eyed Jimmy reproachfully, but Jimmy was in no mood for apologies. "'Who is she?' he kept demanding. "'What's her name?' "'Might have killed me,' grumbled the convalescent. Who is she? What? Why, Miss McKechn? Jimmy had known what the answer would be, but it was scarcely less of a shock for that reason. Miss McKechn? he echoed. Lord Drever nodded a somber nod. You're engaged to her? Another somber nod. I don't believe it, said Jimmy. 
I wish I didn't," said his lordship wistfully, ignoring the slight rudeness of the remark. But worse luck, it's true. For the first time since the disclosure of the name, Jimmy's attention was directed to the remarkable demeanor of his successful rival. "'You don't seem over-pleased,' he said. "'Pleased? Have a fiver each way on pleased. No, I'm not exactly leaping with joy.' "'Then what the devil is it all about? What do you mean? What's the idea? If you don't want to marry Miss McEachern, why did you propose to her?' Lord Drever closed his eyes. "'Dear old boy, don't. It's my uncle.' "'Your uncle? Didn't I explain it all to you, about him wanting me to marry? You know, I told you the whole thing.' Jimmy stared in silence. "'Do you mean to say,' he said slowly. He stopped. It was a profanation to put the thing into words. "'What, old man?' Jimmy gulped. Do you mean to say you want to marry Miss McKechern simply because she has money?" he said. It was not the first time that he had heard of a case of a British peer marrying for such a reason, but it was the first time that the thing had filled him with horror. In some circumstances things come home more forcibly to us. "'It's not me, old man,' murmured his lordship. "'It's my uncle.' "'Your uncle?' Good God!" Jimmy clenched his hands despairingly. Do you mean to say that you let your uncle order you about in a thing like this? Do you mean to say you're such a, such a, such a gelatin, backboneless worm? Old man, I say, protested his lordship wounded. I'd call you a wretched knock-kneed skunk, only I don't want to be fulsome. I hate flattering a man to his face. Lord Drever, deeply pained, half rose from his seat. "'Don't get up,' urged Jimmy smoothly. "'I couldn't trust myself.' His lordship subsided hastily. He was feeling alarmed. He had never seen this side of Jimmy's character. At first he had been merely aggrieved and disappointed. He had expected sympathy. Now the matter had become more serious. Jimmy was pacing the room like a young and hungry tiger. At present, it was true, there was a billiard-table between them. But his lordship felt that he could have done with good stout bars. He nestled in his seat with the earnest concentration of a limpet on a rock. It would be deuced bad form, of course, for Jimmy to assault his host, but could Jimmy be trusted to remember the niceties of etiquette? Why the devil she accepted you, I can't think," said Jimmy, half to himself, stopping suddenly and glaring across the table. Lord Drever felt relieved. This was not polite, perhaps, but at least it was not violent. "'That's what beats me, too, old man,' he said. "'Between you and me, it's jolly rum business. This afternoon—what about this afternoon?' Why, she wouldn't have me at any price!" "'You asked her this afternoon?' "'Yes, and it was all right then. She refused me like a bird. Wouldn't hear of it. Came damn near laughing in my face. And then to-night,' he went on, his voice squeaky at the thought of his wrongs, 
My uncle sends for me, and says she's changed her mind and is waiting for me in the morning-room. I go there, and she tells me in about three words that she's been thinking it over and that the whole fearful thing is on again. I call it jolly rough on a chap. I felt such a frightful ass, you know. I didn't know what to do, whether to kiss her, I mean." Jimmy snorted violently. "'Eh?' said his lordship, blankly. "'Go on,' said Jimmy, between his teeth. I felt a fearful fool, you know. I just said, right ho or something, dash it if I know what I did say, and legged it. It's a jolly rum business, the whole thing. It isn't as if she wanted me. I could see that with half an eye. She doesn't care hang for me. It's my belief, old man," he said solemnly, that she's been badgered into it. I believe my uncle's been at her." Jimmy laughed shortly. My dear man, you seem to think your uncle's persuasive influence is universal. I guess it's confined to you. Well, anyhow, I believe that's what's happened. What do you say? Why say anything? There doesn't seem to be much need." He poured some brandy into a glass and added a little soda. "'You take it pretty stiff,' observed his lordship, with a touch of envy. "'On occasion,' said Jimmy, emptying the glass. Chapter 18 The Lochinvar Method As Jimmy sat smoking a last cigarette in his bedroom before going to bed that night, Spike Mullins came in. Jimmy had been thinking things over. He was one of those men who are at their best in a losing game. Imminent disaster always had the effect of keying him up and putting an edge on his mind. The news he had heard that night had left him with undiminished determination, but conscious that a change of method would be needed. He must stake all on a single throw now. Young Lochinvar rather than Romeo must be his model. He declined to believe himself incapable of getting anything that he wanted as badly as he wanted Molly. He also declined to believe that she was really attached to Lord Drever. He suspected the hand of McKechern in the affair, though the suspicion did not clear up the mystery by any means. Molly was a girl of character, not a feminine counterpart of his lordship, content meekly to do what she was told in a matter of this kind. The whole thing puzzled him. "'Well, Spike,' he said. He was not too pleased at the interruption. He was thinking, and he wanted to be alone. Something appeared to have disturbed Spike. His bearing was excited. "'Say, boss, guess what? You know that guy that come this afternoon, the guy from the village, that came with old man McKechn?' "'Gaylor,' said Jimmy. "'What about him?' There had been an addition to the guests at the castle that afternoon. Mr. McKechn, walking in the village, had happened upon an old New York acquaintance of his, who, touring England, had reached Drever and was anxious to see the historic castle. Mr. McKechn had brought him thither, introduced him to Sir Thomas, and now Mr. Samuel Gaylor was occupying a room on the same floor as Jimmy's. He had appeared at dinner that night, a short, wooden-faced man, with no more conversation than Hargate. Jimmy had paid little attention to the newcomer. "'What about him?' he said. "'He's a sleuth, boss.' "'A what? A sleuth? 
A detective? That's right, a fly cop. What makes you think that? Think? Why, I can tell them by their eyes and their feet, and the whole of them. I could pick out a fly cop from a bunch of a thousand. He's sure enough slewed all right, all right. I seen him rubber in at you's, boss. At me? Why at me? Why, of course. I see now. Our friend McKeckern has got him in to spy on us. That's right, boss. Of course, you may be mistaken. Not me, boss. And say, he ain't the only one. What? More detectives? They'll have to put up house-full boards at this rate. Who's the other? A mug what's down in the servants' hall. I wasn't so sure of him at first, but now I'm on to his curves. He's a slew, all right. He's valley to Sir Thomas, this second mug is. But he ain't no valley. He's come to see no one don't get busy with the jewels. Say, what do you think of them jewels, boss? Finest I ever saw. Yes, that's right. A hundred thousand plunks they set him back. They're the limit, ain't they? Say, won't you really? Spike, I'm surprised at you. Do you know you're getting a regular Mephistopheles spike? Suppose I hadn't an iron will. What would happen? You really must select your subjects of conversation more carefully. You're bad company for the likes of me." Spike shuffled despondently. But, boss— Jimmy shook his head. It can't be done, my lad. But it can, boss, protested Spike. It's dead easy. I been up to the room, and I seen the box with the jewels is kept in. Why, it's the softest ever. We could get them as easy as pulling the plug out of a bottle. Why, say, there's never been such a peach of a place for getting hold of the stuff as this house. That's right, boss. Why, look what I got this afternoon, just snooping around and not really trying to get busy at all. It was just lying about." He plunged his hand into his pocket and drew it out again. As he unclosed his fingers, Jimmy caught the gleam of precious stones. "'What the?' he gasped. Spike was looking at his treasure-trove with an air of affectionate proprietorship. "'Where on earth did you get those?' asked Jimmy. "'Out of one of the rooms. They belonged to one of the loydies. It was the easiest old thing ever, boss. I just went in when there was nobody around, and there they was on the toybo. I never butted into anything so soft. Spike! Yes, boss? Do you remember the room you took them from? Sure, it was the foist on the— Then listen to me for a moment, my bright boy. When we're at breakfast tomorrow, you want to go to that room and put those things back. All of them, mind you, just where you found them. Do you understand? Spike's jaw had fallen. Put them back, boss! he faltered. Every single one of them. "'Boss!' said Spike, plaintively. "'Remember, every single one of them, just where it belongs, see?' "'Very well, boss.' The dejection in his voice would have moved the sternest to pity. Gloom had enveloped Spike's spirit. The sunlight had gone out of his life. It had also gone out of the lives of a good many other people at the castle. 
This was mainly due to the growing shadow of the day of the theatricals. For pure discomfort there are few things in the world that can compete with the final rehearsals of an amateur theatrical performance at a country house. Every day the atmosphere becomes more heavily charged with restlessness and depression. The producer of the piece, especially if he be also the author of it, develops a sort of intermittent insanity. He plucks at his moustache, if he has one, at his hair if he has not. He mutters to himself. He gives vent to occasional despairing cries. The soothing suavity that marked his demeanor in the earlier rehearsals disappears. He no longer says with a winning smile, "'Splendid, old man, splendid! Couldn't be better! But I think we'll take that over just once more, if you don't mind.' Instead, he rolls his eyes and snaps out, "'Once more, please! This'll never do! At this rate we might just as well cut out the show altogether! What's that? No, it won't be all right on the night! Now then, once more, and do pull yourself together this time!' After this the scene is sulkily resumed, and conversation, when the parties concerned meet subsequently, is cold and strained. Matters had reached this stage at the castle. Everybody was thoroughly tired of the piece, and, but for the thought of the disappointment which, presumably, would rack the neighboring nobility and gentry, if it were not to be produced, would have resigned their places without a twinge of regret. People who had schemed to get the best and longest parts were wishing now that they had been content with first footman, or Giles a villager. I'll never run an amateur show again as long as I live," confided Charteris to Jimmy, almost tearfully. It's not good enough. Most of them aren't word-perfect yet. It'll be all right. Oh, don't say it'll be all right on the night. I wasn't going to, said Jimmy. I was going to say it'll be all right after the night. People will soon forget how badly the thing went. "'You're a nice, comforting sort of man, aren't you?' said Charteris. "'Why worry?' said Jimmy. "'If you go on like this, it'll be Westminster Abbey for you in your prime. You'll be getting brain fever.' Jimmy himself was one of the few who were feeling reasonably cheerful. He was deriving a keen amusement at present from the maneuvers of Mr. Samuel Gaylor of New York. This lynx-eyed man, having been instructed by Mr. McEachern to watch Jimmy, was doing so with a thoroughness that would have roused the suspicions of a babe. If Jimmy went to the billiard-room after dinner, Mr. Gaylor was there to keep him company. If during the course of the day he had occasion to fetch a handkerchief or a cigarette-case from his room, he was sure, on emerging, to stumble upon Mr. Gaylor in the corridor. The employees of Dodson's private inquiry agency believed in earning their salaries. Occasionally, after these encounters, Jimmy would come upon Sir Thomas Blunt's valet, the other man in whom Spike's trained eye had discerned the distinguishing marks of the sleuth. He was usually somewhere round the corner at these moments, and, when collided with, apologized with great politeness. Jimmy decided that he must have come under suspicion in this case vicariously, through Spike. 
Spike, in the servants' hall, would, of course, stand out conspicuously enough to catch the eye of a detective on the lookout for sin among the servants, and he himself, as Spike's employer, had been marked down as a possible confederate. It tickled him to think that both these giant brains should be so greatly exercised on his account. He had been watching Molly closely during these days. So far, no announcement of the engagement had been made. It struck him that possibly it was being reserved for public mention on the night of the theatricals. The whole county would be at the castle then. There could be no more fitting moment. He sounded Lord Reaver, and the latter said moodily that he was probably right. "'There's going to be a dance of sorts after the show,' he said. "'And it'll be done then, I suppose. No getting out of it after that. It'll be all over the county. Trust my uncle for that. He'll get on a table and shout it, shouldn't wonder. And it'll be in the morning post next day, and Katie'll see it. Only two days more, oh, Lord!' Jimmy deduced that Katie was the Savoy girl, concerning whom his lordship had vouchsafed no particulars save that she was a ripper and hadn't a penny. Only two days. Like the Battle of Waterloo, it was going to be a close-run affair. More than ever now, he realized how much Molly meant to him, and there were moments when it seemed to him that she, too, had begun to understand. That night on the terrace seemed somehow to have changed their relationship. He thought he had got closer to her. They were in touch. Before, she had been frank, cheerful, unembarrassed. Now he noticed a constraint in her manner, a curious shyness. There was a barrier between them, but it was not the old barrier. He had ceased to be one of a crowd. But it was a race against time. The first day slipped by, a blank, and the second, till now, it was but a matter of hours. The last afternoon had come. Not even Mr. Samuel Gaylor, of Dodson's private inquiry agency, could have kept a more unflagging watch than did Jimmy during those hours. There was no rehearsal that afternoon, and the members of the company, in various stages of nervous collapse, strayed distractedly about the grounds. First one, then another, would seize upon Molly, while Jimmy, watching from afar, cursed their pertinacity. At last she wandered off alone, and Jimmy, quitting his ambush, followed. She walked in the direction of the lake. It had been a terribly hot, oppressive afternoon. There was thunder in the air. Through the trees the lake glittered invitingly. She was standing at the water's edge when Jimmy came up. Her back was turned. She was rocking with her foot a Canadian canoe that lay alongside the bank. She started as he spoke. His feet on the soft turf had made no sound. "'Can I take you out on the lake?' he said. She did not answer for a moment. She was plainly confused. "'I'm sorry,' she said. "'I—I'm waiting for Lord Drever.' Jimmy saw that she was nervous. There was tension in the air. She was looking away from him, out across the lake and her face was flushed. "'Won't you?' he said. "'I'm sorry,' she said again. Jimmy looked over his shoulder. 
down the lower terrace was approaching the long form of his lordship. He walked with pensive jerkiness, not as one hurrying to a welcome tryst. As Jimmy looked, he vanished behind the great clump of laurels that stood on the lowest terrace. In another minute he would reappear round them. Gently, but with extreme dispatch, Jimmy placed a hand on either side of Molly's waist. The next moment he had swung her off her feet and lowered her carefully to the cushions in the bow of the canoe. Then, jumping in himself with a force that made the boat rock, he loosened the mooring rope, seized the paddle, and pushed off. End of Part 6 Part 7 of The Intrusion of Jimmy by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Intrusion of Jimmy. Chapter 19. On the Lake. In making love, as in every other branch of life, consistency is the quality most to be aimed at. To hedge is fatal. A man must choose the line of action that he judges to be best suited to his temperament and hold to it without deviation. If Lochinvar snatches the maiden up on his saddle-bow, he must continue in that vein. He must not fancy that, having accomplished the feat, he can resume the episode on lines of devotional humility. Prehistoric man, who conducted his courtship with a club, never fell into the error of apologizing when his bride complained of headache. Jimmy did not apologize. The idea did not enter his mind. He was feeling prehistoric. His heart was beating fast, and his mind was in a whirl, but the one definite thought that came to him during the first few seconds of the journey was that he ought to have done this earlier. This was the right way. Pick her up and carry her off, and leave uncles and fathers and butter-haired peers of the realm to look after themselves. This was the way. Alone together in their own little world of water, with nobody to interrupt and nobody to overhear. He should have done it before. He had wasted precious golden time, hanging about while futile men chattered to her of things that could not possibly be of interest. But he had done the right thing at last. He had got her. She must listen to him now. She could not help listening. They were the only inhabitants of this new world. He looked back over his shoulder at the world they had left. The last of the Dreavers had rounded the clump of laurels and was standing at the edge of the water, gazing perplexedly after the retreating canoe. "'These poets put a thing very neatly sometimes,' said Jimmy reflectively, as he dug the paddle into the water. The man who said, "'Distance lends enchantment to the view, for instance.' Drever looks quite nice when you see him as far away as this, with a good strip of water in between." Molly, gazing over the side of the boat into the lake, abstained from feasting her eyes on the picturesque spectacle. "'Why did you do it?' she said in a low voice. Jimmy shipped the paddle and allowed the canoe to drift. The ripple of the water against the prow sounded clear and thin in the stillness. The world seemed asleep. The sun blazed down, turning the water to flame. The air was hot, 
with the damp electrical heat that heralds a thunderstorm. Molly's face looked small and cool in the shade of her big hat. Jimmy, as he watched her, felt that he had done well. This was indeed the way. "'Why did you do it?' she said again. "'I had to.' "'Take me back.' "'No.' He took up the paddle and placed a broader strip of water between the two worlds, then paused once more. "'I have something to say to you first, he said. She did not answer. He looked over his shoulder again. His lordship had disappeared. "'Do you mind if I smoke?' She nodded. He filled his pipe carefully and lighted it. The smoke moved sluggishly up through the still air. There was a long silence. A fish jumped close by, falling back in a shower of silver drops. Molly started at the sound and half turned. "'That was a fish,' she said, as a child might have done. Jimmy knocked the ashes out of his pipe. "'What made you do it?' he asked abruptly, echoing her own question. She drew her fingers slowly through the water without speaking. "'You know what I mean. Drever told me.' She looked up with a flash of spirit, which died away as she spoke. "'What right?' she stopped and looked away again. "'None,' said Jimmy. "'But I wish you would tell me.' She hung her head. Jimmy bent forward and touched her hand. "'Don't,' he said. "'For God's sake, don't. You mustn't.' "'I must,' she said miserably. "'You shan't. It's wicked.' I must. It's no good talking about it. It's too late. It's not. You must break it off today. She shook her head. Her fingers still dabbled mechanically in the water. The sun was hidden now behind a gray veil, which deepened into a sullen black over the hill behind the castle. The heat had grown more oppressive, with a threat of coming storm. What made you do it? he asked again. Don't let's talk about it, please." He had a momentary glimpse of her face. There were tears in her eyes. At the sight his self-control snapped. "'You shan't!' he cried. "'It's ghastly! I won't let you! You must understand now. You must know what you are to me. Do you think I shall let you?' A low growl of thunder rumbled through the stillness like the muttering of a sleepy giant. The black cloud that had hung over the hill had crept closer. The heat was stifling. In the middle of the lake, some fifty yards distant, lay the island, cool and mysterious in the gathering darkness. Jimmy broke off and seized the paddle. On this side of the island was a boathouse, a little creek covered over with boards and capable of sheltering an ordinary rowboat. He ran the canoe in just as the storm began, and turned her broadside on so that they could watch the rain, which was sweeping over the lake in sheets. He began to speak again, more slowly now. "'I think I loved you from the first day I saw you on the ship. And then I lost you. I found you again by a miracle, and lost you again. I found you here by another miracle but this time I am not going to lose you. 
Do you think I'm going to stand by and see you taken from me by—by—' He took her hand. "'Molly, you can't love him. It isn't possible. If I thought you did, I wouldn't try to spoil your happiness. I'd go away. But you don't. You can't. He's nothing. Molly!' The canoe rocked as he leaned toward her. "'Molly!' She said nothing. But for the first time her eyes met his, clear and unwavering. He could read fear in them. Fear, not of himself, of something vague, something he could not guess at. But they shone with a light that conquered the fear as the sun conquers fire, and he drew her to him and kissed her again and again, murmuring incoherently. Suddenly she wrenched herself away, struggling like some wild thing. The boat plunged. "'I can't!' she cried in a choking voice. "'I mustn't! Oh, I can't!' He stretched out a hand and clutched at the rail that ran along the wall. The plunging ceased. He turned. She had hidden her face and was sobbing quietly with the forlorn hopelessness of a lost child. He made a movement toward her, but drew back. He felt dazed. The rain thudded and splashed on the wooden roof. A few drops trickled through a crack in the boards. He took off his coat and placed it gently over her shoulders. "'Molly!' She looked up with wet eyes. "'Molly, dear, what is it?' "'I mustn't. It isn't right.' "'I don't understand.' I mustn't, Jimmy." He moved cautiously forward, holding the rail, till he was at her side and took her in his arms. "'What is it, dear? Tell me!' She clung to him without speaking. "'You aren't worried about him, are you? About Drever? There's nothing to worry about. It'll be quite easy and simple. I'll tell him if you like. He knows you don't care for him, and besides, there's a girl in London that he—no, no, it's not that. What is it, dear? What's troubling you? Jimmy—' She stopped. He waited. Yes? Jimmy, my father wouldn't—father—father father doesn't— Doesn't like me? She nodded miserably. A great wave of relief swept over Jimmy. He had imagined, he hardly knew what he had imagined, some vast, insuperable obstacle, some tremendous catastrophe, whirling them asunder. He could have laughed aloud in his happiness. So this was it, this was the cloud that brooded over them, that Mr. McEachern did not like him. The angel guarding Eden with a fiery sword had changed into a policeman with a truncheon. He must learn to love me," he said lightly. She looked at him hopelessly. He could not see me, he could not understand, and how could she tell him? Her father's words rang in her brain. He was crooked. He was here on some game. He was being watched. But she loved him, she loved him. Oh, how could she make him understand? She clung tighter to him, trembling. He became serious again. "'Dear, you mustn't worry. 
he said. It can't be helped. He'll come round. Once we're married. No, no. Oh, can't you understand? I couldn't. I couldn't. Jimmy's face whitened. He looked at her anxiously. But, dear, he said, you can't. Do you mean to say, will that... He searched for a word. Stop you, he concluded. It must, she whispered. A cold hand clutched at his heart. His world was falling to pieces, crumbling under his eyes. But... But you love me, he said slowly. It was as if he were trying to find the key to a puzzle. I... don't see. You couldn't. You can't. You're a man. You don't know. It's so different for a man. He's brought up all his life with the idea of leaving home. He goes away naturally. But, dear, you couldn't live at home all your life. Whoever you married... But this would be different. Father would never speak to me again. I should never see him again. He would go right out of my life. Jimmy, I couldn't. A girl can't cut away twenty years of her life and start fresh like that. I should be haunted. I should make you miserable. Every day a hundred little things would remind me of him, and I shouldn't be strong enough to resist them. You don't know how fond he is of me, how good he has always been. Ever since I can remember we've been such friends. You've only seen the outside of him, and I know how different that is from what he really is. All his life he has thought only of me. He has told me things about himself which nobody else dreams of, and I know that all these years he has been working just for me. Jimmy, you don't hate me for saying this, do you?" "'Go on,' he said, drawing her closer to him. "'I can't remember my mother. She died when I was quite little. So he and I have been the only ones, till you came.' Memories of those early days crowded her mind as she spoke, making her voice tremble, half-forgotten trifles many of them, fraught with the glamour and fragrance of past happiness. We have always been together. He trusted me, and I trusted him, and we saw things through together. When I was ill, he used to sit up all night with me, night after night. Once, I'd only gotten a little fever, really, but I thought I was terribly bad. I heard him come in late, and called out to him, and he came straight in, and sat, and held my hand, all through the night. And it was only by accident I found out later that it had been raining and that he was soaked through. It might have killed him. We were partners, Jimmy dear. I couldn't do anything to hurt him now, could I? It wouldn't be square." Jimmy had turned away his head, for fear his face might betray what he was feeling. He was in a hell of unreasoning jealousy. He wanted her, body and soul, and every word she said bit like a raw wound. A moment before he had felt that she belonged to him. Now, in the first shock of reaction, he saw himself a stranger, an intruder, a trespasser on holy ground. She saw the movement, and her intuition put her in touch with his thoughts. "'No, no!' she cried. "'No, Jimmy, 
not that. Their eyes met, and he was satisfied. They sat there, silent. The rain had lessened in its force, and was falling now in a gentle shower. A strip of blue sky, pale and watery, showed through the gray over the hills. On the island, close behind them, a thrush had begun to sing. "'What are we to do?' she said at last. "'What can we do?' "'We must wait,' he said. "'It will all come right. It must. Nothing can stop us now.' The rain had ceased. The blue had routed the gray and driven it from the sky. The sun, low down in the west, shone out bravely over the lake. The air was cool and fresh. Jimmy's spirits rose with a bound. He accepted the omen. This was the world as it really was, smiling and friendly, not gray as he had fancied it. He had won. Nothing could alter that. What remained to be done was trivial. He wondered how he could ever have allowed it to weigh upon him. After a while he pushed the boat out of its shelter onto the glittering water and seized the paddle. "'We must be getting back,' he said. "'I wonder what time it is. I wish we could stay out forever. But it must be late. Molly?' "'Yes?' "'Whatever happens, you'll break off this engagement with Drever. Shall I tell him? I will, if you like.' "'No, I will. I'll write him a note, if I don't see him before dinner.' Jimmy paddled on a few strokes. "'It's no good,' he said suddenly. "'I can't keep it in. Molly, do you mind if I sing a bar or two? I've got a beastly voice, but I'm feeling rather happy. I'll stop as soon as I can.' He raised his voice discordantly. Covertly, from beneath the shade of her big hat, Molly watched him with troubled eyes. The sun had gone down behind the hills, and the water had ceased to glitter. There was a suggestion of chill in the air. The great mass of the castle frowned down upon them, dark and forbidding in the dim light. She shivered. CHAPTER Twenty, A LESSON IN PIQUET Lord Drever, meanwhile, having left the waterside, lighted a cigarette, and proceeded to make a reflective tour of the grounds. He felt aggrieved with the world. Molly's desertion in the canoe with Jimmy did not trouble him. He had other sorrows. One is never at one's best and sunniest when one has been forced by a ruthless uncle into abandoning the girl one loves and becoming engaged to another to whom one is indifferent. Something of a jaundiced tinge stains one's outlook on life in such circumstances. Moreover, Lord Drever was not by nature an introspective young man, but examining his position as he walked along he found himself wondering whether it was not a little unheroic. He came to the conclusion that perhaps it was. Of course, Uncle Thomas could make it deucedly unpleasant for him if he kicked. That was the trouble. If only he had even, say, a couple of thousands a year of his own, he might make a fight for it. But, dash it, Uncle Tom could cut off supplies to such a frightful extent, if there was any trouble, that he would have to go on living at Drever indefinitely, without so much as a fearful quid to call his own. Imagination boggled at the prospect. 
In the summer and autumn, when there was shooting, his lordship was not indisposed to a stay at the home of his father's, but all the year round, better a broken heart inside the radius than a sound one in the country in the winter. But by gad, mused his lordship, if I had as much as a couple, yes, dash it, even a couple of thousand a year, I'd chance it, and ask Katie to marry me, dash it if I wouldn't. He walked on, drawing thoughtfully at his cigarette. The more he reviewed the situation, the less he liked it. There was only one bright spot in it, and this was the feeling that now money must surely get a shade less tight. Extracting the precious ore from Sir Thomas hitherto had been like pulling back teeth out of a bulldog. But now, on the strength of this infernal engagement, surely the uncle might reasonably be expected to scatter largesse to some extent. His lordship was just wondering whether, if approached in a softened mood, the other might not disgorge something quite big, when a large warm raindrop fell on his hand. From the bushes round about came an ever-increasing patter. The sky was leaden. He looked round him for shelter. He had reached the rose-garden in the course of his perambulations. At the far end was a summer-house. He turned up his coat-collar and ran. As he drew near, he heard a slow and dirge-like whistling proceeding from the interior. Plunging in out of breath, just as the deluge began, he found Hargate seated at the little wooden table with an earnest expression on his face. The table was covered with cards. Hargate had not yet been compelled to sprain his wrist, having adopted the alternative of merely refusing invitations to play billiards. "'Hello, Hargate,' said his lordship. "'Isn't it coming down, by Jove?' Hargate glanced up nodded without speaking, and turned his attention to the cards once more. He took one from the pack in his left hand, looked at it, hesitated for a moment, as if doubtful whereabouts on the table it would produce the most artistic effect, and finally put it face upward. Then he moved another card from the table and put it on top of the other one. Throughout the performance he whistled painfully. His lordship regarded his guest with annoyance. "'That looks frightfully exciting,' he said disparagingly. "'What are you playing at? Patience?' Hargate nodded again, this time without looking up. "'Oh, don't sit there looking like a frog,' said Lord Drever irritably. "'Talk, man!' Hargate gathered up the cards and proceeded to shuffle them in a meditative manner, whistling the while. "'Oh, stop it!' said his lordship. Hargate nodded and obediently put down the deck. "'Look here,' said Lord Drever. "'This is boring me stiff. Let's have a game of something—anything to pass away the time. Curse this rain! We shall be cooped up here till dinner at this rate. Ever played piquet? I could teach it you in five minutes.' A look almost of awe came into Hargate's face, the look of one who sees a miracle performed before his eyes. For years he had been using all the large stock of diplomacy at his command to induce callow youths to play piquet with him, and here was this admirable young man, this pearl among young men, positively offering to teach him the game. 
It was too much happiness. What had he done to deserve this? He felt as a toil-worn lion might feel if some antelope, instead of making its customary beeline for the horizon, were to trot up and insert its head between his jaws. I... I shouldn't mind being shown the idea," he said. He listened attentively while Lord Drever explained at some length the principles that govern the game of piquet. Every now and then he asked a question. It was evident that he was beginning to grasp the idea of the game. "'What exactly is repeking?' he asked, as his lordship paused. "'It's like this,' said his lordship, returning to his lecture. "'Yes, I see now,' said the neophyte. They began playing. Lord Drever, as was only to be expected in a contest between teacher and student, won the first two hands. Hargate won the next. "'I've got the hang of it all right now,' he said, complacently. "'It's a simple sort of game. Make it more exciting, don't you think, if we played for something?' "'All right,' said Lord Drever slowly if you like." He would not have suggested it himself, but after all, dash it, if the man really asked for it, it was not his fault if the winning of a hand should have given the fellow the impression that he knew all there was to be known about Piquet. Of course, Piquet was a game where skill was practically bound to win. But, after all, Hargate probably had plenty of money. He could afford it. "'All right,' said his lordship again. "'How much?' "'Something fairly moderate. Ten bob a hundred. There is no doubt that his lordship ought, at this suggestion, to have corrected the novice's notion that ten shillings a hundred was fairly moderate. He knew that it was possible for a poor player to lose four hundred points in a twenty minutes game, and usually for him to lose two hundred but he let the thing go. "'Very well,' he said. Twenty minutes later, Hargate was looking somewhat ruefully at the score-sheet. "'I owe you eighteen shillings,' he said. "'Shall I pay you now, or shall we settle up in a lump after we've finished?' "'What about stopping now?' said Lord Drever. "'It's quite fine out.' "'No, let's go on. I've nothing to do till dinner, and I don't suppose you have.' His lordship's conscience made one last effort. "'You'd much better stop, you know, Hargate, really,' he said. "'You can lose a frightful lot of this game.' "'My dear Drever,' said Hargate stiffly, "'I can look after myself, thanks. Of course, if you think you are risking too much, by all means—oh, if you don't mind,' said his lordship, outraged. I'm only too frightfully pleased. Only, remember, I warned you. I'll bear it in mind. By the way, before we start, care to make it a sovereign a hundred? Lord Drever could not afford to play piquet for a sovereign a hundred, or indeed to play piquet for money at all, but after his adversary's innuendo it was impossible for a young gentleman of spirit to admit the humiliating fact. He nodded. "'About time, I fancy,' said Hargate, looking at his watch an hour later, "'that we were going in to dress for dinner.' His lordship made no reply. He was wrapped in thought. 
Let's see, that's twenty pounds you owe me, isn't it? continued Hargate. Shocking bad luck you had. They went out into the rose garden. Jolly everything smells after the rain, said Hargate, who seemed to have struck a conversational patch. Freshened everything up. His lordship did not appear to have noticed it. He seemed to be thinking of something else. His air was pensive and abstracted. There's just time, said Hargate, looking at his watch again, for a short stroll. I want to have a talk with you. Oh, said Lord Drever. His air did not belie his feelings. He looked pensive and was pensive. It was deuced awkward, this twenty pounds business. Hargate was watching him covertly. It was his business to know other people's business, and he knew that Lord Drever was impecunious, and depended for supplies entirely on a prehensile uncle. For the success of the proposal he was about to make, he depended on this fact. "'Who's this man, Pitt?' asked Hargate. "'Oh, pal of mine,' said Lordship. "'Why?' "'I can't stand the fellow.' "'I think he's a good chap,' said his lordship. "'In fact, remembering Jimmy's good Samaritanism, I know he is. Why don't you like him?' "'I don't know. I don't.' "'Oh,' said his lordship, indifferently. He was in no mood to listen to the likes and dislikes of other men. "'Look here, Drever,' said Hargate. "'I want you to do something for me.' I want you to get Pitt out of the place." Lord Drever eyed his guest curiously. "'Eh?' he said. Hargate repeated his remark. "'You seem to have mapped out quite a program for me,' said Lord Drever. "'Get him out of it,' continued Hargate vehemently. Jimmy's prohibition against billiards had hit him hard. He was suffering the torments of Tantalus. The castle was full of young men of the kind to whom he most resorted, easy marks every one, and here he was, simply through Jimmy, careened like a disabled battleship. It was maddening. "'Make him go. You invited him here. He doesn't expect to stop indefinitely, I suppose. If you left, he'd have to, too. What you must do is to go back to London tomorrow. You can easily make some excuse. He'll have to go with you. Then you can drop him in London and come back. That's what you must do." A delicate pink flush might have been seen to spread itself over Lord Drever's face. He began to look like an angry rabbit. He had not a great deal of pride in his composition, but the thought of the ignominious role that Hargate was sketching out for him stirred what he had to its shallow bottom. Talking on, Hargate managed to add the last straw. "'Of course,' he said, "'that money you lost to me at Piquet—what was it, twenty, twenty pounds, was it? Well, we would look on that as cancelled, of course. That would be all right.' His lordship exploded. "'Will it?' he cried, pink to the ears. "'Will it?' he cried, pink to the ears. "'Will it, by George?' I'll pay you every frightful penny of it tomorrow, and then you can clear out instead of Pitt. What do you take me for, I should like to know?" "'A fool, if you refuse my offer.' 
I've a jolly good mind to give you a most frightful kicking. I shouldn't try if I were you. It's not the sort of game you'd shine at. Better stick to piquet. If you think I can't pay your rotten money, I do. But if you can, so much the better. Money is always useful. I may be a fool in some ways. You understate it, my dear man. But I'm not a cad. You're getting quite rosy, Dreaver. Wrath is good for the complexion. And if you think you can bribe me, you never made a bigger mistake in your life. Yes, I did, said Hargate, when I thought you had some glimmerings of intelligence. But if it gives you any pleasure to behave like the juvenile lead in a melodrama, by all means do. Personally, I shouldn't have thought the game would be worth the candle. But if your keen sense of honor compels you to pay the twenty pounds, all right. You mention tomorrow? That will suit me. So we'll let it go at that. He walked off, leaving Lord Drever filled with the comfortable glow that comes to the weak man who for once has displayed determination. He felt that he must not go back from his dignified standpoint. That money would have to be paid, and on the morrow. Hargate was the sort of man who could, and would, make it exceedingly unpleasant for him if he failed. A debt of honor was not a thing to be trifled with. But he felt quite safe. He knew he could get the money when he pleased. It showed, he reflected philosophically, how out of evil cometh good. His greater misfortune, the engagement, would, as it were, neutralize the less, for it was ridiculous to suppose that Sir Thomas, having seen his ends accomplished, and being presumably in a spacious mood in consequence, would not be amenable to a request for a mere twenty pounds. He went on into the hall. He felt strong and capable. He had shown Hargate the stuff there was in him. He was Spenny Drever, the man of blood and iron, the man with whom it were best not to trifle. But it was really, come to think of it, uncommonly lucky that he was engaged to Molly. He recoiled from the idea of attempting, unfortified by that fact, to extract twenty pounds from Sir Thomas for a card debt. In the hall he met Saunders. "'I have been looking for your lordship,' said the butler. "'Eh? Well, here I am.' "'Just so, your lordship. Miss McKechn entrusted me with this note to deliver to you in the event of her not being able to see you before dinner personally, your lordship.' Right-ho, thanks." He started to go upstairs, opening the envelope as he went. What could the girl be writing to him about? Surely she wasn't going to start sending him love-letters, or any of that frightful rot. Deuced difficult it would be to play up to that sort of thing. He stopped on the first landing to read the note, and at the opening line his jaw fell. The envelope fluttered to the ground. "'Oh, my sainted aunt!' he moaned clutching at the banisters. Now I am in the soup. CHAPTER Twenty One: LOATHSOME GIFTS There are, doubtless, men so constructed that they can find themselves accepted suitors without any particular whirl of emotion. King Solomon probably belonged to this class, 
and even Henry the Eighth must have been a trifle blasé in time. But to the average man the sensations are complex and overwhelming. A certain stunned feeling is perhaps predominant. Blended with this is relief, the relief of a general who has brought a difficult campaign to a successful end, or of a member of a forlorn hope who finds that the danger is over and that he is still alive. To this must be added a newly born sense of magnificence. Our suspicion that we were something rather out of the ordinary run of men is suddenly confirmed. Our bosom heaves with complacency, and the world has nothing more to offer. With some there is an alloy of apprehension in the metal of their happiness, and the strain of an engagement sometimes brings with it even a faint shadow of regret. "'She makes me buy things!' one swain, in the third quarter of his engagement, was overheard to moan to a friend. Two new ties only yesterday!' He seemed to be debating with himself whether human nature could stand the strain. But whatever tragedies may cloud the end of the period, its beginning, at least, is bathed in sunshine. Jimmy, regarding his lathered face in the glass as he dressed for dinner that night, marveled at the excellence of this best of all possible worlds. No doubts disturbed him. That the relations between Mr. McKechern and himself offered a permanent bar to his prospects he did not believe. For the moment he declined to consider the existence of the ex-constable at all. In a world that contained Molly there was no room for other people. They were not in the picture. They did not exist. To him, musing contentedly over the goodness of life, there entered, in the furtive manner habitual to that unreclaimed buccaneer, Spike Mullins. It may have been that Jimmy read his own satisfaction and happiness into the faces of others, but it certainly seemed to him that there was a sort of restrained joyousness about Spike's demeanour. The Bowery boy's shuffles on the carpet were almost a dance. His face seemed to glow beneath his crimson hair. "'Well,' said Jimmy, "'and how goes the world with young Lord Fitzmullins? Spike, have you ever been best man?' "'What's dat, boss?' "'Best man at a wedding. Chap who stands by the bridegroom with a hand on the scruff of his neck to see that he goes through with it. Fellow who looks after everything, crowds the money onto the minister at the end of the ceremony, and then goes off and marries the first bridesmaid and lives happily ever.' Spike shook his head. "'I ain't got no use for getting married, boss.' Spike, the misogynist. "'You wait, Spike. Some day love will awaken your heart, and you'll start writing poetry.' "'I's not that kind of mug, boss,' protested the Bowery boy. "'I ain't got no use for goyles. It's a mutt's game.' This was rank heresy. Jimmy laid down the razor from motives of prudence, and proceeded to lighten Spike's reprehensible darkness. "'Spike, you're an ass,' he said. "'You don't know anything about it. If you had any sense at all, you'd understand that the only thing worth doing in life is to get married. You bone-headed bachelors make me sick. Think what it would mean to you having a wife.' Think of going out on a cold winter's night to crack a crib, knowing that there would be a cup of hot soup waiting for you when you got back, 
and your slippers all warmed and comfortable. And then she'd sit on your knee, and you'd tell her how you shot the policeman, and you'd examine the swag together. Why, I can't imagine anything cozier. Perhaps there would be little spikes running about the house. Can't you see them jumping with joy as you slid in through the window and told the great news? "'Father's killed a policeman!' cried the tiny eager voices. Candy is served out all round in honor of the event. Golden-haired little Jimmy Mullins, my godson, gets a dime for having thrown a stone at a plainclothes detective that afternoon. All is joy and wholesome revelry. Take my word for it, Spike, there's nothing like domesticity." "'There was a Goyle once,' said Spike meditatively. Only I was never her steady. She married a cop." "'She wasn't worthy of you, Spike,' said Jimmy sympathetically. "'A girl capable of going to the bad like that would never have done for you. You must pick some nice, sympathetic girl, with a romantic admiration for your line of business. Meanwhile, let me finish shaving, or I shall be late for dinner. Great doings on tonight, Spike.' Spike became animated. "'Sure, boss. I—that's just what—' If you could collect all the blue blood that will be under this roof tonight, Spike, into one vat, you'd be able to start a dyeing works. Don't try it, though. They mightn't like it. By the way, have you seen anything more—of course you have. What I mean is, have you talked at all with that valet man, the one you think is a detective?" "'Why, boss, that's just—I hope for his own sake he's a better performer than my old friend Gaylor. That man is getting on my nerves, Spike. He pursues me like a smell-dog. I expect he's lurking out in the passage now. Did you see him?" "'Did I? Boss, why—' Jimmy inspected Spike gravely. "'Spike,' he said, "'there's something on your mind. You're trying to say something. What is it? Out with it!' Spike's excitement vented itself in a rush of words. "'Gee, boss! There's been doin's tonight for fair. Me Coco's still buzzin'. Sure ting. Why say when I was Sir Thomas dressin' room this afternoon? What? Sure as ting you know. Just before the storm come on, when it was all as dark as could be. Well, I was. Jimmy interrupted. In Sir Thomas's dressing room. What the? Spike looked somewhat embarrassed. He grinned apologetically and shuffled his feet. "'I've got em, boss,' he said with a smirk. "'Got them. Got what?' "'These.' Spike plunged a hand in a pocket and drew forth in a glittering mass Lady Julia Blunt's rope of diamonds. End of Part 7《Part Eight of the Intrusion of Jimmy by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Intrusion of Jimmy, Chapter Twenty Two. Two of a Trade Disagree. One hundred thousand plunks, murmured Spike, gazing lovingly at them. I says to myself, the boss ain't got no time to be getting after them himself. He's too busy these days with jollying along the swells. So it's up to me, I says, 
"'Cause the boss'll be tickled to debt, all right, all right, if we can get away with them. So I—' Jimmy gave tongue with an energy that amazed his faithful follower. The nightmare horror of the situation had affected him much as a sudden blow in the parts about the waistcoat might have done. But now, as Spike would have said, he caught up with his breath. The smirk faded slowly from the other's face as he listened. Not even in the Bowery, full as it was of candid friends, had he listened to such a trenchant summing up of his mental and moral deficiencies. "'Boss!' he protested. "'That's just a sketchy outline,' said Jimmy, pausing for breath. "'I can't do you justice impromptu like this. You're too vast and overwhelming.' "'But, boss, what's eating you? Ain't you tickled?' "'Tickled?' Jimmy sawed the air. "'Tickled? You lunatic! Can't you see what you've done?' "'I've got them,' said Spike whose mind was not readily receptive of new ideas. It seemed to him that Jimmy missed the main point. "'Didn't I tell you there was nothing doing when you wanted to take those things the other day?' Spike's face cleared. As he had suspected, Jimmy had missed the point. "'Why, say, boss, yes, sure. But those was little dinky things. Of course, yous wouldn't stand for swiping chicken feed like them.' But these is different. These diamonds is Boyd's. It's one hundred thousand plunks for these." "'Spike,' said Jimmy with painful calm. "'Huh? Will you listen for a moment?' "'Sure.' "'I know it's practically hopeless. To get an idea into your head, one wants a proper outfit—drills, blasting powder, and so on. But there's just a chance, perhaps, if I talk slowly. Has it occurred to you, Spike, my bonny blue-eyed Spike, that every other man, more or less, in this stately home of England, is a detective who has probably received instructions to watch you like a lynx? Do you imagine that your blameless past is a sufficient safeguard? I suppose you think that these detectives will say to themselves, Now, whom shall we suspect? We must leave out Spike Mullins, of course, because he naturally wouldn't dream of doing such a thing. It can't be dear old Spike who's got the stuff." "'But, boss,' interposed Spike brightly, "'I ain't. That's right. I ain't got it. Yous has.' Jimmy looked at the speaker with admiration. After all, there was a breezy delirium about Spike's methods of thought that was rather stimulating when you got used to it. The worst of it was that it did not fit in with practical everyday life. Under different conditions, say during convivial evenings at Bloomingdale, he could imagine the Bowery boy being a charming companion. How pleasantly, for instance, such remarks as that last would while away the monotony of a padded cell. "'But, laddie,' he said with steely affection, "'listen once more. Reflect ponder. Does it not seep into your consciousness that we are, as it were, subtly connected in this house in the minds of certain bad persons? Are we not imagined by Mr. McEachern, for instance, to be working hand in hand like brothers? 
Do you fancy that Mr. McEachern, chatting with his tame sleuth-hound over their cigars, would have been reticent on this point? I think not. How do you propose to baffle that gentlemanly sleuth, Spike, who, I may mention once again, has rarely moved more than two yards away from me since his arrival?" An involuntary chuckle escaped Spike. "'Sure, boss, that's all right.' "'All right, is it? Well, well, what makes you think it is all right?' Oh, "'I say, boss, those sleuths is out of business.' A merry grin split Spike's face. "'It's funny, boss. Gee, it's got a circus skinned. Listen, they's been and arrest each other.' Jimmy moodily revised his former view. Even in Bloomingdale this sort of thing would be coldly received. Genius must ever walk alone. Spike would have to get along without hope of meeting a kindred spirit, another fellow being in tune with his brain processes. "'That's right,' chuckled Spike. "'Leastways, it ain't.' "'No, no,' said Jimmy, soothingly. "'I quite understand.' "'It's this way, boss. One of them has been an arrest to other mug. They had a scrap, each thinking the other guy was after the jewels, and not knowing they was boat sleuths, and now one of them's been and taken the other off, and—' There were tears of innocent joy in Spike's eyes. "'And—' locked him into the coal-cellar." "'What on earth do you mean?' Spike giggled helplessly. "'Listen, boss, it's this way. Gee, it beat the band. When it's all dark cause of the storm coming on, I'm in the dressing-room chasing round for the jewel-box, and just as I gets a line on it, gee, I hears a footstep coming down the passage, very soft, straight for the door. Was I to the bed? That's right. I says to myself, here's one of the sleuth guys who's been and got wise to me, and he's coming in to put the grip on me. So I gets up quick and I hides behind a coitin. There's a coitin at the side of the room. There's dude suits and things hanging behind it. I chases myself in there and stands waiting for the sleuth to come in. Cause then, you see, I'm going to try and get busy before he can see who I am. It's pretty dark cause of the storm, and jolt him one on the point of the jaw and then, while he's down and out, chase myself for the servants' hall." "'Yes?' said Jimmy. "'Well, this guy he gets to the door and opens it, and I'm just getting ready for one sudden boist of speed, when there jumps out from the room on the other side of the passage—you know the room—another guy, and gets the rapid stranglehold on the foist mug. Say, would that make you as glad you hadn't gone to the circus? Honest, it was better than Coney Island." "'Go on. What happened then?' "'They forced a scrappin' good and hard. They couldn't see me, and I couldn't see them. But I could hear them bumpin' about and sluggin' each other to beat the band. And by and by one of the mugs puts the other mug to the bed, so that he goes down and takes the count. And then I hears a click. And I know what that is. It's one of the gazebos has put the irons on the other gazebo. Call them A and B, suggested Jimmy. Then I hears him, the voice mug, strike a light, cause it's dark there, cause of the storm, and then he says, Got yous, have I? And he says, I've had my eye on yous, thinking yous was up to something of this kind. I've been watching yous. I knew the voice. 
it's that mug what calls himself Sir Thomas Valley. And utter, Jimmy burst into a roar of laughter. Don't, Spike, this is more than man was meant to stand. Do you mean to tell me it is my bright, brainy, persevering friend Gator who has been handcuffed and locked in the coal cellar? Spike grinned broadly. Sure, that's right, he said. It's a judgment, said Jimmy delightedly. That's what it is. No man has a right to be such a consummate ass as Gaither. It isn't decent. There had been moments when McEachern's faithful employee had filled Jimmy with an odd sort of fury, a kind of hurt pride, almost to the extent of making him wish that he really could have been the desperado McEachern fancied him. Never in his life before had he sat still under a challenge, and this espionage had been one. Behind the clumsy watcher he had seen always the self-satisfied figure of McEachern. If there had been anything subtle about the man from Dodson's he could have forgiven him, but there was not. Years of practice had left Spike with a sort of sixth sense as regarded representatives of the law. He could pierce the most cunning disguise. But in the case of Gaither, even Jimmy could detect the detective. "'Go on,' he said. Spike proceeded. "'Well, the other mug, the one down and out on the floor with the irons on—' "'Gaither, in fact,' said Jimmy. "'Handsome, dashing Gaither.' "'Sure. Well, he's too busy catching up with his breath to shoot it back swift. But after he's been doing the deep-breathing strut for a while, he says, "'You mutt,' he says, "'use this to the bed. You've made a break, you have. That's right, sure as ting you know.' He puts it different, but that's what he means. "'I'm a sleuth,' he says. "'Take these things off,' meaning the irons. "'Does the other mug, the valley gazebo, give him the glad eye? Not so's you could notice it. He gives him the merry ha-ha.' He says that that's the worst tale that's ever been handed to him. Tell it to Sweeney, he says. I knows yous. Yous worms yourself into the house as a guest when yous is really after the loidy's jewels. At these cruel woids, these other magatha gets hot under the collar. I'm sure enough sleuth, he says. I blows into this house at a special request of Mr. McEachern, the American gent. The other mug hands the lemon again. Tell it to the king of Denmark, he says. There's cops to limit. Use has enough gall for ten strong men, he says. Show me to Mr. McCacken, says Gaither. He'll crouch, is that it? Vouch, suggested Jimmy, meaning give the glad hand to. That's right, vouch. I wondered what he meant at the time. He'll vouch for me, he says. That puts him all right, he thinks. But no, he's still in Dutch, cause the valley mug says, Nix on that. I ain't going to chase around the house with yous looking for Mr. McEachern. It's yous for the coal cellar, me man, and we'll see what yous has to say when it makes me report to Sir Thomas. Well, that's to the good, says Gaila. Tell Sir Thomas. I'll explain to him. Not me, says the valley. Sir Thomas has a hard evening's work before him, jollying along the swells what's coming to see this storage piece they're acting. I ain't going to worry him till he's good and ready. To the coal cellar for yous. Gwan, and off they goes. And I gets busy again, swipes the jewels, and chases meself here." Jimmy wiped his eyes. "'Have you ever heard of poetic justice, Spike?' he asked. "'This is it.' 
But in this hour of mirth and goodwill, we must not forget. Spike interrupted. Pleased by the enthusiastic reception of his narrative, he proceeded to point out the morals that were to be deduced therefrom. So, you see, boss, he said, it's all to de merry. When dey rubbers for de jewels and finds dem gone, they'll tink dis gator guy swiped them. Dey won't tink of us. Jimmy looked at the speaker gravely. Of course, said he, what a reasoner you are, Spike. Gator was just opening the door from the outside, by your account, when the valet man sprang at him. Naturally, they'll think that he took the jewels, especially as they won't find them on him. A man who can open a locked safe through a closed door is just the sort of fellow who would be able to get rid of the swag neatly while rolling about the floor with the valet. His not having the jewels will make the case all the blacker against him. And what will make them still more certain that he is the thief is that he really is a detective. Spike, you ought to be in some sort of a home, you know." The Bowery boy looked disturbed. "'I didn't think of that, boss,' he admitted. "'Of course not. One can't think of everything. Now, if you will just hand me those diamonds, I will put them back where they belong.' "'Put them back, boss?' "'What else would you propose?' I'd get you to do it, only I don't think putting things back is quite in your line." Spike handed over the jewels. The boss was the boss, and what he said went. But his demeanor was tragic, telling eloquently of hopes blighted. Jimmy took the necklace with something of a thrill. He was a connoisseur of jewels, and a fine gem affected him much as a fine picture affects the artistic. He ran the diamonds through his fingers, then scrutinized them again, more closely this time. Spike watched him with a slight return of hope. It seemed to him that the boss was wavering. Perhaps, now that he had actually handled the jewels, he would find it impossible to give them up. To Spike, a diamond necklace of cunning workmanship was merely the equivalent of so many plunks but he knew that there were men, otherwise sane, who valued a jewel for its own sake. "'It's a boyd of a necklace, boss,' he murmured encouragingly. "'It is,' said Jimmy, in its way. "'I've never seen anything much better. Sir Thomas will be glad to have it back.' "'Then you're going to put it back, boss?' "'I am,' said Jimmy. "'I'll do it just before the theatricals.' There should be a chance, then. There's one good thing. This afternoon's affair will have cleared the air of sleuth-hounds a little. CHAPTER Twenty Three, FAMILY JARS Hildebrand Spencer Point de Berg John Hannaside Combe Crumbie, twelfth Earl of Drever, was feeling like a toad under the harrow. He read the letter again, but a second perusal made it no better. Very briefly and clearly, Molly had broken off the engagement. She thought it best. She was afraid it could make neither of us happy. All very true, thought his lordship miserably, his sentiments to a T. At the proper time, he would have liked nothing better. But why seize for this declaration the precise moment when he was intending, on the strength of the engagement, to separate his uncle from twenty pounds. 
That was what rankled. That Molly could have no knowledge of his sad condition did not occur to him. He had a sort of feeling that she ought to have known by instinct. Nature, as has been pointed out, had equipped Hildebrand Spencer Point de Berg with one of those cheap substitute minds. What passed for brain in him was to genuine gray matter as just as good imitation coffee is to real mocha. In moments of emotion and mental stress, consequently, his reasoning, like Spike's, was apt to be in a class of its own. He read the letter for the third time, and a gentle perspiration began to form on his forehead. This was awful. The presumable jubilation of Katie, the penniless ripper of the Savoy, when he should present himself to her a free man, did not enter into the mental picture that was unfolding before him. She was too remote. Between him and her lay the fearsome figure of Sir Thomas, rampant, filling the entire horizon. Nor is this to be wondered at. There was probably a brief space during which Perseus, concentrating his gaze upon the monster, did not see Andromeda, and a knight of the Middle Ages, jousting the gentleman's singles for a smile from his lady, rarely allowed the thought of that smile to occupy his whole mind at the moment when his boiler-plated antagonist was descending upon him in the wake of a sharp spear. So with Spenny Drever. Bright eyes might shine for him when all was over, but in the meantime what seemed to him more important was that bulging eyes would glare. If only this had happened later, even a day later! The reckless impulsiveness of the modern girl had undone him. How was he to pay Hargate the money? Hargate must be paid, that was certain. No other course was possible. Lord Drever's was not one of those natures that fret restlessly under debt. During his early career at college he had endeared himself to the local tradesmen by the magnitude of the liabilities he had contracted with them. It was not the being in debt that he minded, it was the consequences. Hargate, he felt instinctively, was of a revengeful nature. He had given Hargate twenty pounds' worth of snubbing, and the latter had presented the bills. If it were not paid, things would happen. Hargate and he were members of the same club, and a member of a club who loses money at cards to a fellow-member, and fails to settle up, does not make himself popular with the committee. He must get the money. There was no avoiding that conclusion. But how? Financially, his lordship was like a fallen country with a glorious history. There had been a time, during his first two years at college, when he had reveled in the luxury of a handsome allowance. This was the golden age, when Sir Thomas Blunt, being, so to speak, new to the job, and feeling that, having reached the best circles, he must live up to them, had scattered largesse lavishly. For two years after his marriage with Lady Julia he had maintained this admirable standard, crushing his natural parsimony. He had regarded the money so spent as capital sunk in an investment. By the end of the second year he had found his feet and began to look about him for ways of retrenchment. His lordship's allowance was an obvious way. He had not to wait long for an excuse for annihilating it. There is a game called poker, at which a man without much control over his features may exceed the limits of the handsomest allowance. 
his lordship's face during a game of poker was like the surface of some quiet pond, ruffled by every breeze. The blank despair of his expression when he held bad cards made bluffing expensive. The honest joy that bubbled over in his eyes when his hand was good acted as an efficient danger signal to his grateful opponents. Two weeks of poker had led to his writing to his uncle a distressed but confident request for more funds, and the avuncular foot had come down with a joyous bang. Taking his stand on the evils of gambling, Sir Thomas had changed the conditions of the money market for his nephew with a thoroughness that effectually prevented the possibility of the use being again caught by the fascinations of poker. The allowance vanished absolutely, and in its place there came into being an arrangement. By this his lordship was to have whatever money he wished, but he must ask for it, and state why it was needed. If the request was reasonable, the cash would be forthcoming. If preposterous, it would not. The flaw in the scheme, from his lordship's point of view, was the difference of opinion that can exist in the minds of two men as to what the words reasonable and preposterous may be taken to mean. Twenty pounds, for instance, would, in the lexicon of Sir Thomas Blunt, be perfectly reasonable for the current expenses of a man engaged to Molly McEachern, but preposterous for one to whom she had declined to remain engaged. It is these subtle shades of meaning that make the English language so full of pitfalls for the foreigner. So engrossed was his lordship in his meditations that a voice spoke at his elbow ere he became aware of Sir Thomas himself, standing by his side. "'Well, Spenny, my boy,' said the knight, "'time to dress for dinner, I think, eh, eh?' He was plainly in high good humour. The thought of the distinguished company he was to entertain that night had changed him temporarily, as with some wave of a fairy-wand, into a thing of joviality and benevolence. One could almost hear the milk of human kindness gurgling and splashing within him. The irony of fate! To-night such was his mood. A dutiful nephew could have come and felt in his pockets and helped himself, if circumstances had been different. Oh, woman, woman, how you bar us from paradise!" His lordship gurgled a wordless reply, thrusting the fateful letter hastily into his pocket. He would break the news anon. Soon, not yet, later on, in fact, anon. "'Upon your part, my boy,' continued Sir Thomas, "'you mustn't spoil the play by forgetting your lines. That wouldn't do.' His eye was caught by the envelope that Spenny had dropped. A momentary lapse from the jovial and benevolent was the result. His fussy little soul abhorred small untidinesses. "'Dear me,' he said, stooping, "'I wish people would not drop paper about the house. I cannot endure a litter." He spoke as if somebody had been playing hare and hounds, and scattering the scent on the stairs. This sort of thing sometimes made him regret the old days. In blunt stores, Rule 67 imposed a fine of half a crown on employees convicted of paper-dropping. "'I—' began his lordship. "'Why?' Sir Thomas straightened himself. "'It's addressed to you.' I was just going to pick it up. 
It's, um, there's a note in it." Sir Thomas gazed at the envelope again. Joviality and benevolence resumed their thrones. "'Hand in the feminine handwriting,' he chuckled. He eyed the limp peer almost roguishly. "'I see, I see,' he said. "'Very charming, quite delightful. Girls must have their little romance. I suppose you two young people are exchanging love-letters all day. Delightful, quite delightful. Don't look as if you were ashamed of it, my boy. I like it. I think it's charming." Undoubtedly this was the opening. Beyond a question, his lordship should have said at this point, "'Uncle, I cannot tell a lie. I cannot even allow myself to see you laboring under a delusion which a word from me can remove. The contents of this note are not what you suppose. They run as follows." What he did say was, "'Uncle, can you let me have twenty pounds?' Those were his amazing words. They slipped out. He could not stop them. Sir Thomas was taken aback for an instant, but not seriously. He started as might a man who, stroking a cat, receives a sudden but trifling scratch. Twenty pounds, eh?' he said, reflectively. Then the milk of human kindness swept over displeasure like a tidal wave. This was a night for rich gifts to the deserving. "'Why, certainly, my boy, certainly. Do you want it at once?' His lordship replied that he did, please, and he had seldom said anything more fervently. "'Well, well, we'll see what we can do. Come with me.' He led the way to his dressing-room. Like nearly all the rooms at the castle, it was large. One wall was completely hidden by the curtain behind which Spike had taken refuge that afternoon. Sir Thomas went to the dressing-table and unlocked a small drawer. Twenty, you said? Five, ten, fifteen. Here you are, my boy.' Lord Drever muttered his thanks. Sir Thomas accepted the guttural acknowledgment with a friendly pat on the shoulder. "'I like a little touch like that,' he said. His lordship looked startled. "'I wouldn't have touched you,' he began, "'if it hadn't been—' "'A little touch like that letter-writing,' Sir Thomas went on. "'It shows a warm heart. She is a warm-hearted girl, Spinney. A charming, warm-hearted girl. You're uncommonly lucky, my boy." His lordship, crackling the four banknotes, silently agreed with him. "'But come, I must be dressing. Dear me, it is very late. We shall have to hurry. By the way, my boy, I shall take the opportunity of making a public announcement of the engagement tonight. It will be a capital occasion for it. I think perhaps at the conclusion of the theatricals a little speech, something quite impromptu and informal, just asking them to wish you happiness and so on. I like the idea. There is an old-world air about it that appeals to me. Yes." He turned to the dressing-table and removed his collar. "'Well, run along, my boy,' he said. "'You must not be late.' His lordship tottered from the room. He did quite an unprecedented amount of thinking as he hurried into his evening clothes, but the thought occurring most frequently was that, whatever happened, all was well in one way, at any rate. He had the twenty pounds. There would be something colossal in the shape of disturbances when his uncle learned the truth. 
it would be the biggest thing since the San Francisco earthquake. But what of it? He had the money. He slipped it into his waistcoat pocket. He would take it down with him and pay Hargate directly after dinner. He left the room. The flutter of a skirt caught his eye as he reached the landing. A girl was coming down the corridor on the other side. He waited at the head of the stairs to let her go down before him. As she came on to the landing, he saw that it was Molly. For a moment there was an awkward pause. "'Um, I got your note,' said his lordship. She looked at him and then burst out laughing. "'You know, you don't mind the least little bit,' she said. "'Not a scrap, now do you?' "'Well, you see, don't make excuses, do you?' "'Well, it's like this. You see, I—' He caught her eye. Next moment they were laughing together. "'No, but look here, you know,' said his lordship. "'What I mean is, it isn't that I don't—I mean, look here, there's no reason why we shouldn't be the best of pals.' "'Why, of course there isn't.' "'No, really,' I say. "'That's ripping. Shake hands on it.' They clasped hands. And it was in this affecting attitude that Sir Thomas Blunt, bustling downstairs, discovered them. "'Aha!' he cried archly. "'Well, well, well. But don't mind me, don't mind me.' Molly flushed uncomfortably partly because she disliked Sir Thomas even when he was not arch, and hated him when he was, partly because she felt foolish, and principally because she was bewildered. She had not looked forward to meeting Sir Thomas that night. It was always unpleasant to meet him, but it would be more unpleasant than usual after she had upset the scheme for which he had worked so earnestly. She had wondered whether he would be cold and distant, or voluble and heated. In her pessimistic moments she had anticipated a long and painful scene. That he should be behaving like this was not very much short of a miracle. She could not understand it. A glance at Lord Drever enlightened her. That miserable creature was wearing the air of a timid child about to pull a large cracker. He seemed to be bracing himself up for an explosion. She pitied him sincerely. So, he had not told his uncle the news yet. Of course, he had scarcely had time. Saunders must have given him the note as he was going up to dress. There was, however, no use in prolonging the agony. Sir Thomas must be told sooner or later. She was glad of the chance to tell him herself. She would be able to explain that it was all her doing. "'I'm afraid there's a mistake,' she said. "Eh?" said Sir Thomas. I've been thinking it over, and I came to the conclusion that we weren't—well, I broke off the engagement." Sir Thomas' always prominent eyes protruded still further. The color of his florid face deepened. Suddenly he chuckled. Molly looked at him, amazed. Sir Thomas was, indeed, behaving unexpectedly tonight. I see it, he wheezed. You're having a good joke with me. So this is what you were hatching as I came downstairs. Don't tell me. If you had really thrown him over, you wouldn't have been laughing together like that. It's no good, my dear. I might have been taken in if I had not seen you, but I did. No, no, cried Molly. You're wrong. You're quite wrong. 
When you saw us we were just agreeing that we should be very good friends, that was all. I broke off the engagement before that. I—' She was aware that his lordship was emitting a hollow croak, but she took it as his method of endorsing her statement, not as a warning. I wrote Lord Drever a note this evening, she went on, telling him that I couldn't possibly. She broke off in alarm. With the beginning of her last speech, Sir Thomas had begun to swell, until now he looked as if he were in imminent danger of bursting. His face was purple. To Molly's lively imagination, his eyes appeared to move slowly out of his head, like a snail's. From the back of his throat came strange noises. So, he stammered. He gulped and tried again. So, this, he said. So, this, so, that, what was in that letter, eh? Lord Drever, a limp bundle against the banisters, smiled weakly. Eh? yelled Sir Thomas. His lordship started convulsively. Er, yes, he said. Yes, yes. That was it, don't you know?" Sir Thomas eyed his nephew with a baleful stare. Molly looked from one to the other in bewilderment. There was a pause, during which Sir Thomas seemed partially to recover command of himself. Doubts as to the propriety of a family row in mid-stairs appeared to occur to him. He moved forward. "'Come with me,' he said, with awful curtness. His lordship followed, bonelessly. Molly watched them go, and wondered more than ever. There was something behind this. It was not merely the breaking off of the engagement that had roused Sir Thomas. He was not a just man, but he was just enough to be able to see that the blame was not Lord Drever's. There had been something more. She was puzzled. In the hall, Saunders was standing, weapon in hand, about to beat the gong. "'Not yet!' snapped Sir Thomas. Wait!" Dinner had been ordered especially early that night because of the theatricals. The necessity for strict punctuality had been straightly enjoined upon Saunders. At some inconvenience he had ensured strict punctuality. And now—but we all have our cross to bear in this world—Saunders bowed with dignified resignation. Sir Thomas led the way into his study. "'Be so good as to close the door,' he said. His lordship was so good. Sir Thomas backed to the mantelpiece, and stood there in the attitude which for generations has been sacred to the elderly Briton, feet well apart, hands clasped beneath his coat-tails. His stare raked Lord Drever like a searchlight. "'Now, sir,' he said. His lordship wilted before the gaze. "'The fact is, uncle, never mind the facts. I know them. What I require is an explanation." He spread his feet further apart. The years had rolled back, and he was plain Thomas Blunt again, of Blunt stores, dealing with an erring employee. "'You know what I mean,' he went on. "'I am not referring to the breaking off of the engagement. What I insist upon learning is your reason for failing to inform me earlier of the contents of that letter. His lordship said that, somehow, don't you know, there didn't seem to be a chance, you know. He had several times been on the point, but, well, somehow, well, that's how it was. 
"'No chance!' cried Sir Thomas. "'Indeed! Why did you require that money I gave you?' "'Oh, er, uh, I wanted it for something.' "'Very possibly. For what?' "'I'm—the fact is, I owed it to a fellow—' "'Ha! How did you come to owe it?' His lordship shuffled. "'You have been gambling!' boomed Sir Thomas. "'Am I right?' "'No, no. I say, no, no. It wasn't gambling. It was a game of skill. We were playing piquet.' "'Kindly refrain from quibbling. You lost this money at cards, then, as I supposed. Just so.' He widened the space between his feet. He intensified his glare. He might have been posing to an illustrator of Pilgrim's Progress for a picture of Apollyon straddling right across the way. "'So,' he said, "'you deliberately concealed from me the contents of that letter in order that you might extract money from me under false pretenses? Don't speak!' His lordship had gurgled. "'You did! Your behaviour was that of a—of a—' There was a very fair selection of evildoers in all branches of business from which to choose. He gave the preference to the racetrack. "'Of a common welsher!' he concluded. But I won't put up with it. No, not for an instant. I insist upon your returning that money to me here and now. If you have not got it with you, go and fetch it." His lordship's face betrayed the deepest consternation. He had been prepared for much, but not for this. That he would have to undergo what in his school days he would have called a jaw was inevitable, and he had been ready to go through with it. It might hurt his feelings, possibly, but it would leave his purse intact. A ghastly development of this kind he had not foreseen. "'But I say, uncle,' he bleated. Sir Thomas silenced him with a grand gesture. Ruefully, his lordship produced his little all. Sir Thomas took it with a snort and went to the door. Saunders was still brooding statuesquely over the gong. "'Sound it!' said Sir Thomas. Saunders obeyed him with the air of an unleashed hound. "'And now,' said Sir Thomas, "'go to my dressing-room and place these notes in the small drawer of the table.' The butler's calm, expressionless, yet withal observant eye took in at a glance the signs of trouble. Neither the inflated air of Sir Thomas nor the punctured balloon-bearing of Lord Drever escaped him. "'Something up he said to his immortal soul, as he moved upstairs. Been a fair old rare old row, seems to me." He reserved his more polished periods for use in public. In conversation with his immortal soul, he was wont to unbend somewhat. CHAPTER Twenty Four: THE TREASURE-SEEKER Gloom wrapped his lordship about, during dinner, as with a garment he owed twenty pounds. His assets amounted to seven shillings and fourpence. He thought and thought again. Quite an intellectual pallor began to appear on his normally pink cheeks. Saunders, silently sympathetic—he hated Sir Thomas as an interloper, and entertained for his lordship, under whose father also he had served, a sort of paternal fondness—was ever at his elbow with the magic bottle and to Spenny, 
emptying and re-emptying his glass almost mechanically, Wine, the healer, brought an idea. To obtain twenty pounds from any one person of his acquaintance was impossible. To divide the twenty by four, and persuade a generous quartet to contribute five pounds apiece, was more feasible. Hope began to stir within him again. Immediately after dinner he began to flit about the castle like a family spectre of active habits. The first person he met was Chartres. "'Hullo, Spinney,' said Chartres. "'I wanted to see you. It is currently reported that you are in love. At dinner you looked as if you had influenza. What's your trouble? For goodness' sake bear up till the show's over. Don't go swooning on the stage or anything. Do you know your lines?' "'The fact is,' said his lordship eagerly, "'it's this way. I happen to want—can you lend me a fiver?' "'All I have in the world at this moment,' said Charteris, "'is eleven shillings and a postage stamp. If the stamp would be of any use to you as a start—no. You know, it's from small beginnings like that that great fortunes are amassed. However—' Two minutes later Lord Drever had resumed his hunt. The path of the borrower is a thorny one, especially if, like Spenny, his reputation as a payer-back is not of the best. Spenny, in his time, had extracted small loans from most of his male acquaintances, rarely repaying the same. He had a tendency to forget that he had borrowed half a crown here to pay a cab and ten shillings there to settle up for a dinner and his memory was not much more retentive of larger sums. This made his friend somewhat wary. The consequence was that the great treasure-hunt was a failure from start to finish. He got friendly smiles. He got honeyed apologies. He got earnest assurances of good-will. But he got no money, except from Jimmy Pitt. He had approached Jimmy in the early stages of the hunt and Jimmy, being in the mood when he would have loaned anything to anybody, yielded the required five pounds without a murmur. But what was five pounds? The garment of gloom and the intellectual pallor were once more prominent when his lordship repaired to his room to don the loud tweeds, which, as Lord Herbert, he was to wear in the first act. There is a good deal to be said against stealing as a habit but it cannot be denied that, in certain circumstances, it offers an admirable solution of a financial difficulty, and if the penalties were not so exceedingly unpleasant, it is probable that it would become far more fashionable than it is. His lordship's mind did not turn immediately to this outlet from his embarrassment. He had never stolen before, and it did not occur to him directly to do so now. There is a conservative strain in all of us. But, gradually, as it was borne in upon him that it was the only course possible, unless he were to grovel before Hargate on the morrow and ask for more time to pay, an unthinkable alternative, he found himself contemplating the possibility of having to secure the money by unlawful means. By the time he had finished his theatrical toilet, he had definitely decided that this was the only thing to be done. His plan was simple. He knew where the money was, in the dressing-table in Sir Thomas's room. He had heard Saunders instructed to put it there. What could be easier than to go and get it? Everything was in his favour. 
Sir Thomas would be downstairs, receiving his guests. The coast would be clear. Why, it was like finding the money. Besides, he reflected, as he worked his way through the bottle of mums which he had had the forethought to abstract from the supper-table as a nerve-steadier, it wasn't really stealing. Dash it all, the man had given him the money. It was his own. He had half a mind—he poured himself out another glass of the elixir—to give Sir Thomas a jolly good talking to into the bargain. Yes, dash it all! He shot his cuffs fiercely. The British lion was roused. A man's first crime is, as a rule, a shockingly amateurish affair. Now and then, it is true, we find beginners forging with the accuracy of old hands, or breaking into houses with the finish of experts, but these are isolated cases. The average tyro lacks generalship altogether. Spenny Drever may be cited as a typical novice. It did not strike him that inquiries might be instituted by Sir Thomas when he found the money gone, and that suspicion might, conceivably, fall upon himself. Courage may be born of champagne, but rarely prudence. The theatricals began at half-past eight with a duologue. The audience had been hustled into their seats, happier than is usual in such circumstances, owing to the rumor which had been circulated that the proceedings were to terminate with an informal dance. The castle was singularly well constructed for such a purpose. There was plenty of room, and a sufficiency of retreat for those who sat out, in addition to a conservatory large enough to have married off half the couples in the county. Spenny's idea had been to establish an alibi by mingling with the throng for a few minutes, and then to get through his burglarious specialty during the duologue, when his absence would not be noticed. It might be that if he disappeared later in the evening, people would wonder what had become of him. He lurked about until the last of the audience had taken their seats. As he was moving off through the hall, a hand fell upon his shoulder. Conscience makes cowards of us all. Spenny bit his tongue and leaped three inches into the air. "'Hello, Chartres,' he said, gaspingly. Chartres appeared to be in a somewhat overwrought condition. Rehearsals had turned him into a pessimist, and now that the actual moment of production had arrived his nerves were in a thoroughly jumpy condition, especially as the duologue was to begin in two minutes, and the obliging person who had undertaken to prompt had disappeared. "'Spenny,' said Chartres, "'where are you off to?' "'What? What do you mean? I was just going upstairs.' "'No, you don't. You've got to come and prompt. That devil Blake has vanished. I'll wring his neck. Come along.' Spenny went reluctantly. Halfway through the duologue, the official prompter returned with the remark that he had been having a bit of a smoke on the terrace, and that his watch had gone wrong. Leaving him to discuss the point with Charteris, Spenny slipped quietly away. The delay, however, had had the effect of counteracting the uplifting effect of the mums. The British lion required a fresh fillip. He went to his room to administer it. By the time he emerged, he was feeling just right for the task in hand. A momentary doubt occurred to him as to whether it would not be a good thing to go down and pull Sir Thomas's nose as a preliminary to the proceedings, but he put the temptation aside. Business before pleasure. 
With a jaunty, if somewhat unsteady, step, he climbed the stairs to the floor above, and made his way down the corridor to Sir Thomas's room. He switched on the light and went to the dressing-table. The drawer was locked, but in his present mood Spenny, like love, laughed at locksmiths. He grasped the handle and threw his weight into a sudden tug. The drawer came out with a report like a pistol-shot. "'There,' said his lordship, wagging his head severely. In the drawer lay the four banknotes. The sight of them brought back his grievance with a rush. He would teach Sir Thomas to treat him like a kid. He would show him. He was removing the notes, frowning fiercely the while, when he heard a cry of surprise from behind him. He turned to see Molly. She was still dressed in the evening gown she had worn at dinner. Her eyes were round with wonder. A few moments earlier, as she was seeking her room in order to change her costume for the theatricals, she had almost reached the end of the corridor that led to the landing, when she observed his lordship, flushed of face and moving like some restive charger, come curveting out of his bedroom in a dazzling suit of tweeds, and make his way upstairs. Ever since their mutual encounter with Sir Thomas before dinner, she had been hoping for a chance of seeing Spenny alone. She had not failed to notice his depression during the meal and her good little heart had been troubled by the thought that she must have been responsible for it. She knew that, for some reason, what she had said about the letter had brought his lordship into his uncle's bad books, and she wanted to find him and say she was sorry. Accordingly, she had followed him. His lordship, still in the war-horse vein, had made the pace upstairs too hot, and had disappeared while she was still halfway up. She had arrived at the top, just in time to see him turn down the passage into Sir Thomas's dressing-room. She could not think what his object might be. She knew that Sir Thomas was downstairs, so it could not be from the idea of a chat with him that Spenny was seeking the dressing-room. Faint yet pursuing, she followed on his trail, and arrived in the doorway just as the pistol report of the burst lock rang out. She stood looking at him blankly. He was holding a drawer in one hand. Why, she could not imagine. "'Lord Drever!' she exclaimed. The somber determination of his lordship's face melted into a twisted but kindly smile. "'Good,' he said, perhaps a trifle thickly. "'Good. Glad you've come. We're pals. You said so. On stairs. For dinner. Very glad you've come.' Won't you sit down?" He waved the drawer benevolently, by way of making her free of the room. The movement disturbed one of the banknotes, which fluttered in Molly's direction and fell at her feet. She stooped and picked it up. When she saw what it was, her bewilderment increased. "'But, but,' she said. His lordship beamed, upon her with a pebble-beached smile of indescribable goodwill. "'Sit down,' he urged. "'We're pals. No quarrel with you. Your good friend. Quarrel, Uncle Thomas.' "'But, Lord Drever, what are you doing? What was that noise I heard?' "'Opening drawer,' said his lordship affably. "'But—she looked again at what she had in her hand. But this is a five-pound note.' Five-pound note, 
said his lordship. Quite right. Three more of them in here. Still, she could not understand. But were you stealing them? His lordship drew himself up. No, he said. No, not stealing, no. Then, like this. Before dinner, old boy friendly as you please, couldn't do enough for me. Touched him for twenty of the best, and got away with it. So far, all well. Then met you on stairs. You let cat out of bag. But why? Surely? His lordship gave the drawer a dignified wave. Not blaming you, he said magnanimously. Not your fault. Misfortune. You didn't know. About letter. About the letter? said Molly. Yes, what was the trouble about the letter? I knew something was wrong directly I had said that I wrote it. Trouble was, said his lordship, that old boy thought it was love-letter. Didn't undeceive him. You didn't tell him. Why? His lordship raised his eyebrows. Wanted touch him twenty of the best, he explained simply. For the life of her, Molly could not help laughing. Don't laugh, protested his lordship wounded. No joke. Serious. Honor at stake. He removed the three notes and replaced the drawer. Honor of the Drevers, he added, pocketing the money. Molly was horrified. But Lord Drever, she cried, you can't. You mustn't. You can't be going, really, to take that money. It's stealing. It isn't yours. You must put it back. His lordship wagged a forefinger very solemnly at her. That, he said, is where you make error. Mine. Old boy gave them to me. Gave them to you? Then why did you break open the drawer? Old boy took them back again when he found out about letter. Then they don't belong to you. Yes. Error. They do. Moral right. Molly wrinkled her forehead in her agitation. Men of Lord Drever's type appeal to the motherly instinct of women. As a man, his lordship was a negligible quantity. He did not count. But as a willful child, to be kept out of trouble, he had a claim on Molly. She spoke soothingly. But Lord Drever, she began, call me Spinney, he urged. We're pals. You said so, on stairs. Everybody calls me Spenny, even Uncle Thomas. I'm going to pull his nose. He broke off suddenly, as one recollecting a forgotten appointment. Spenny, then, said Molly. You mustn't, Spenny. You mustn't, really. You—you you look ripping in that dress, said his lordship, irrelevantly. Thank you, Spenny, dear. But listen. Molly spoke as if she were humoring a rebellious infant. You really mustn't take that money. You must put it back. See, I'm putting this note back. Give me the others, and I'll put them in the drawer, too. Then we'll shut the drawer, and nobody will know. She took the notes from him and replaced them in the drawer. 
he watched her thoughtfully, as if he were pondering the merits of her arguments. "'No,' he said suddenly, "'no! Must have them! Morrow right! Old boy!' She pushed him gently away. "'Yes, yes, I know,' she said, "'I know. It's a shame that you can't have them, but you mustn't take them. Don't you see that he would suspect you the moment he found they were gone, and then you'd get into trouble?' "'Something in that,' admitted his lordship. "'Of course there is, Spenny, dear. I'm so glad you see. There they all are, safe again in the drawer. Now we can go downstairs again, and—' She stopped. She had closed the door earlier in the proceedings, but her quick ear caught the sound of a footstep in the passage outside. "'Quick!' she whispered, taking his hand and darting to the electric light switch. "'Somebody's coming. We mustn't be caught here. They'd see the broken drawer, and you'd get into awful trouble. Quick!' She pushed him behind the curtain where the clothes hung, and switched off the light. From behind the curtain came the muffled voice of his lordship. "'It's Uncle Thomas. I'm coming out. Pull his nose. Be quiet!' She sprang to the curtain and slipped noiselessly behind it. "'But I say,' began his lordship, "'Hush!' she gripped his arm. He subsided. The footsteps had halted outside the door. Then the handle turned softly. The door opened and closed again with hardly a sound. The footsteps passed on into the room. End of Part 8